Radio. This is your host, Abby Martin. And this is your host, Robbie Martin. So, uh, if anyone's been following this story about what happened at RT, um, check it out. There, there's a couple articles that are published on Media Roots that kind of explains the backstory. But what we wanted to do here was just kind of dig deeper into um, the evolution of neoconservatism and how it has morphed and the kind of new players behind the game. Um, and how this is all rooted back decades, pretty much, and 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 the influence over policy that the neocon clan has had, um, and kind of pointing out the characters behind the game. So, if anyone's been following the RT story, you know that my anti-war message on RT essentially got hijacked by warmongers here in D.C. Um, from a think tank called the Foreign Policy Initiative. And ever since this happened, um, my brother's been doing an inordinate amount of research about you know, who these people are in the foreign policy initiative and, and how it all ties back to the Bush administration and beyond far back before that. Um, is there anything else you wanted to add, Robbie? Um, no, I mean, just that the, the neoconservatives, um, just like any ruined brand name, uh, had to like sort of reinvent themselves and repackage their message. And a lot of the core neoconservatives and, um, basically just foreign policy hawks um, who aren't in government, most of them aren't in government currently, um, are still pulling the strings in, in D.C. to a large extent. Um, and they've managed to do it by essentially distancing themselves from the Bush administration foreign policy, pretending like they had no influence over it now after they were really proud of it during the Bush administration, um, effectively rewritten history, and now they're back. Um, and a lot of them are even going out on the media, like Bill Crystal. He's on cro- Crossfire all the time now, and he even got a um, has a permanent gig on ABC now. Uh, so a lot of these people are totally back, um, back in action, like nothing's wrong. Um, <laughs> and and not only them, and not only these giant players behind the game who were actual signatories of PNAC or or really um, serious players back in these administrations, but there's a new kind of young hip clan of neocon um, hack journalists here in DC that have inserted themselves in a bunch of different publications to kind of promote these talking points from uh, from the foreign policy initiative and beyond. Um, you know, Our the, mouthpieces the, yeah. for this type of foreign policy perspective. Yeah, and, and they were of- all the ones kind of vehemently um, trying to undermine my narrative and, and shape this narrative that was against uh, RT um, because they are vying for a new Cold War. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. The, f- the foreign policy initiative um, is a not very well known neoconservative think tank in Washington, D.C. that is essentially the rebranding of the project for the new American century think tank, which was arguably the most influential group of people um, in in uni- in the United States foreign policy apparatus from the late nineties during the entire Bush administration. 
I mean, at least until like the middle of the Bush administration, after all the major things were done. You know, you hear people, we've seen movies like Power of Nightmares, um, Fahrenheit 9-11, the, the typical stuff that's already out in the public consciousness about how neoconservatives and neoconservative thinkers, you know, shaped this foreign policy and then in influenced the Bush administration, then also had key pivotal members inside the Bush administration from their sort of cabal, um, this tightly knit group. And we've all heard that stuff, but I don't think until I, had, I really did a lot of research on the exact like history of how that happened, did I really understand exactly how that happened. Because you have kind of a vague idea of, of, of it. You know, you could think, well, Rumsfeld, Cheney, and Wolfowitz, you know, they had these ideas. They signed that letter to Clinton urging him to go into Iraq in 1996 and all this stuff. So there's connections there that are very, like, easy to find on the surface. Or it's like, oh, okay, well, Wolfowitz obviously had these motives before the Bush administration, going all the way back to the first um, uh, Bush administration. The foreign policy initiative is, is essentially somehow escaped the radar of people who had brought light to, you know, mostly unknown group of neoconservatives in the mainstream consciousness. I mean, they're very well known, obviously, in D.C., but until they were brought to light, I don't think most people really realized what was going on. And right. once they had been, they were so widely hated and despised among the American public, sort of immediately and directly associated with the failures and the horrors of the Iraq war, that they kind of went a little bit back into hiding. And only four or five years later did they come back out and sort of, you know, reassert themselves. And they're, and they're doing the same thing that they were doing back then. They're just taking it, you know, to the next level now. Yeah, they're trying to figure out how they can re-strategize. I mean, we know that... Uh, like any good yeah. corporation or marketing team would advise, you know, advise someone mm -hmm. to do. What do corporations do when they fuck up? I mean, sometimes they even yeah. change their entire like Blackwater. name. Blackwater, yeah, yeah, Blackwater. No, I mean, it's a very typical tactic. And it's not just a simple, oh, let's rebrand ourselves to be uh, a, a new name because people hated, our, hated us so much under our old name. It's different now because they already accomplished in large part a lot of the goals laid out in the Project for the New American Century. So it's almost like they're taking it to the next stage now, essentially, away from you know where the war on terror was almost merely just a stepping stone to get us to what the next stage is now. It was like almost like they pushed it as far as they could. As we know, Wesley Clark was told from another general or something in the army right after 9-11 that they're going to invade seven countries in five years. And when you look at the Project for New American Century, Rebuilding America's Defenses, that infamous document, they talk openly, very unabashedly, and this is before 9-11, mind you, that they did want to invade all these countries and they did want to reassert themselves um, and, and, you know, Western hegemony and imperialism and take over all these resources and reassert their dominance in that area of the world. And they, I think that they just tried to do as much as they could. They tried to like lay it all out, put all their cards out on the table, push the envelope as far as they absolutely could. They pushed it pretty far. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's only a couple states left that were in that initial axis of evil and then the greater axis of evil that haven't been knocked down so far. Um, but David Frum... It was Bush's speechwriter, the Axis of Evil speechwriter. He was he was in the administration. He's like going to Ukraine with Kerchik. I mean, he's writing for the Daily Beast. He's 
still reasserting the fact that the axis of evil was right and that he's like doubling down on the notion. And this is weeks ago. Yeah. Like, so, I mean, these people are still, they're back in full effect, you know, now they're working with these new brand of, of hipster concert neocons now in DC. They're just like, kind of, they're kind of like their, you know, their allies, maybe not as openly in the forefront as they are, but they're still working with them really closely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even, you know, Jamie Kerchick is officially a fellow of the foreign policy initiative, and he is probably the most prominent public face who goes out there and, and speaks on behalf of them. Just like before, 9-11 gave all these people an opportunity to put their plans into action. The Crimean incursion has given them a new opportunity to put some of their similar plans into action, which is to bring us you know, further to a confrontation with Russia. Just like before, they're just extremely opportunistic. It couldn't be any more timely that this, you know, just happened where these people tried to hijack the narrative of you just making an off um, script statement on, on your show on RT because um, they just all sent a letter, a very similar letter to the letter that was sent to president Clinton in 1998 advocating for the um, invasion of Iraq. They sent a letter to Obama. And when I say they, I mean the foreign policy initiative did um, with Bill Crystals uh, as a signatory, Jamie Kerchick as uh, a signer, pretty much all the people in the foreign policy initiative, plus some other ones um, advocating for more military aggression towards Russia. And it's a little bit more vague than their Saddam Hussein Iraq letter, but it's of a very similar flavor. And when they write letters like that, their plans are sort of in full swing. They're like putting people all over the media. So it's happening still right now. Um, you know, they're getting as many media slots as they can possibly get. Um, they're not getting a huge amount of them, but the little bit that they are getting is just injecting just ever so sporadically these little bits of propaganda that take root and are sort of guiding what's happening right now yeah. um, between, uh, you know, Russia and the United States. Right. Yeah. Eli Lake was just on um, the news, the news networks last week, a couple of times, uh, Crystal, you know, the more these people are on, the more these seeds are planted in people's minds and the more the rallying is fostered, such as Bill Crystal um, articulated in his, his op-ed a couple yeah. months ago, um, explaining that a rallying is needed in order to get the people, the American people behind a new, uh, military standoff with Russia. It's basically how he spells it out. So do you want to go into um, kind of how this all started back beyond before the Iraq war? I mean, back with um, kind of the fathers of this, this ideology, Robbie? Yeah. Yeah. Let's, um, let's uh, dive back into it. All right. Great. <laughs> in, in reality, it is a very small group of people who have been the primary inf like influence to spread this this ideology and we've all heard of you know bill crystal not not to be confused with billy crystal the actor <laughs> but bill crystal aka william crystal the guy who started the uh, which is considered the neocon bible the weekly standard magazine in the mid 90s and who also was the founder of project for new american century mr crystal thank you so much for joining me tonight how you doing? You work at Fox I, News. I do. I think all the Fox News should join Bush's cabinet. Absolutely. <laughs> we think alike. Exactly. Speaking of thinking alike, you were a member or are a member of the Project for the New American Century, correct? I am. Were or am? Am? We're, 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 we're and, and am. am. Okay, we're how's, and that, am. How's, the, how's that project coming? Uh, well, it's... How's uh, the New American Century? Uh, I think Looks it's... Looks good to me? <laughs> right? 
I think it, I, I'm speechless. <laughs> really? Yeah, we've sort of, yeah, the yeah, project of the New American come on, Century it's a fantastic was just a few New people. American Century, right? Well, I think you, we're doing Rummy, okay. You, Rummy, Wolfowitz, uh, Cheney, Pearl, Fife, all you guys, right? Uh, well, we fought back after 9-11, and I'm proud of right? what we've done in Afghanistan and in Iraq. Yes. But this is pre-9-11. You guys had the project was, of the New Century in the, in, the, in the 90s. And we thought we should have been fighting back more in the 90s. Right, community. we should have and invaded Iraq, you know, then. His father... Irving Kristol is actually the guy who coined the term neoconservative. It was a term applied to Irving Kristol by a critic. So like someone was criticizing Kristol for essentially being one of these like new conservatives who used to be like a liberal activist who really quickly converted to conservatism because in Kristol's own words, he was mugged by reality. A lot of these a neoconservative was originally labeled to describe people who were once liberal, who based on some kind of real life experience or some kind of external experience, like 9-11 is a good example of, of that, um, would be like, you know, like people who were liberal before 9-11 and 9-11 woke them up into being a conservative. That would be like a literal translation of the term neoconservative. Irving Kristol was originally a liberal and he was a self-labeled what they call a Trotskyite which was sort of like the two different opposing views in Soviet Russia. There was like two opposing factions, the Trotskyites and the Stalinists. So Trotskyites were people in Soviet Russia who believed that to have to carry on a more like true vision of Marxism. So in a way, I mean, you can actually in some way trace back the neoconservative, you know, the grandfather of neoconservatism, Irving Kristol, to like, a part of the Soviet Union that if it actually would have taken over instead of Stalinism might have been an, a much more interesting, you know, less horrible place, like in retrospect, like if the Trotsky ideals actually were what gained ground there and people were more and, and Russia was more intellectual and it wasn't as like closed off of a society to the rest of the world. So, and I'm not giving him any credit. I'm just saying that that was where, that's where his influence comes from. His ideology that he helped start was enfolded leftist policies such as lack of objection in welfare programs, international, quote, revolution through nation building and militarily imposed democracy, and Fabian socialism, Keynesian, Keynesianism coupled with socially conservative viewpoint. And there was the most interesting part of that, I thought, was that the international revolution aspect of nation building is almost like a form of liberal activism, like in, in a domestic sense. It's almost like they, he's using a lot of the same liberal activism sort of ideology to put us on this geopolitical stage. Like we need to like through international revolution, you know, knock down these these other countries which are stifling democracy like that sort of like where the premise is linked to liberalism. And that's what we've all we've talked about for so long on Media Roots, like this idea of how. They get people sucked into a lot of these wars now by saying things like, you know, the Afghanistan war, um, part of the reason it's valid is because they have such horrible rights for women and, and uh, you know, like freedom of speech is illegal and, and all that kind of stuff. So it ties into that. And you can even trace neoconservative back even further, but it's not, it wasn't labeled that back then. So like this guy, Leo Strauss, was a professor, very influential um, intellectual who who was the main guy who influenced Irving Kristol into what is his modern political philosophy of neoconservatism, and 
all and and really at the core of what Leo Strauss did is he was sort of like he was just sort of almost sort of mashing up two different forms of academic thought. So like political science, modern political science, but transposing over it like the philosophical writings of Plato, Aristotle, and other philosophers like Machiavelli onto modern 20th century politics. And when you try to do that, you start you start seeing things in this like different context, obviously. And I think that that's sort of what enabled a lot of, you know, Irving Kristol's ideas to flourish where it was like, they were inside of this like tiny sort of almost like metaphysical um, box that was an abstraction from reality. You know, the philosopher that seemed to have the most influence on, um, on the modern neoconservatives is Machiavelli. Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Saudi Arabia are the big four, and then there's Libya. There's a, there's a North Korean problem, too. I'm a student of Machiavelli. I wrote a book on Machiavelli. And I know the struggle against evil is going to go on forever. That quote was from Michael Ledeen um, during an American Enterprise Institute think tank talk. And we're going to talk a little later about how the American Enterprise Institute um, was a very important neoconservative think tank that predated a lot of these other ones. And also Michael Ledeen um, sits on the board of another prominent neoconservative think tank in DC called the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Um, and stay tuned later in the broadcast, we'll go a lot more in depth on both of those. And Michael Ledeen used to be um, one of the most prominent neoconservative uh, thinkers and writers and speakers. Um, but kind of like Richard Pearl, his rhetoric wasn't as sophisticated as some of the other neoconservatives. His rhetoric was a lot more harsh, um, a little more blunt. And just like he's saying here, um, his rhetoric take, took on a little bit more of a transparent Machiavellian flavor. You've heard the term Machiavellianism mm -hmm. and the philosopher Machiavelli. Um, Machiavellianism, according to the um, like the, deck, the Oxford English Dictionary is, quote, the employment of cunning and duplicity in statecraft or in general conduct. And psychologists have described Machiavellianism um, as like a mental disorder. So they have taken it like psychologists have a, like a new meaning for Machiavellianism, which is a t person's tendency to be unemotional and therefore mm -hmm. able to detach him or herself from conventional morality and hence to deceive and manipulate others. So I think that that at its core is actually what is most important to hold on to with like the philosophy aspect of it. Um, and then you could see that creeping into all these areas, which affect the way statecraft is done today. So like, um, for example, uh, you know, the classic liberal idea embedded in the founding fathers of the United States um, to neoconservatives is not as important or less important than the entire collective entity of the political culture of the, of, of, the United States as it exists today. And when you pull a, a normal person reading a lot of these writings of neoconservatives would think that it sounds similar to fascism because they would use terms like the health of the nation, looking at right. a society as this sim, as this entity in and of itself, what drives or fosters stability and quote good in a nation, you know, nation states mentality as a society, keeping this psychological system healthy by things like nationalism, patriotism, 
the higher ideal that our ideals are so good that we need to spread them to other countries um, using leftist activist rallying techniques on the international geopolitical stage iraq or bosnia those wars were sold for the good of human rights um, they weren't posing a threat to us to make us all feel like humanitarians like without Can I say something really quickly yeah something that struck me as really strange too is like this this way that they speak about um russia and the u.s these these people that have been writing out there um jamie kirchick always writes about russia doing false flags which is so interesting because it's inconceivable to think of the u.s ever doing that to these people guess who also and they like does. mock at it who uh, David Frum and Richard Pearl in a book that's oh sitting right here in front of me, they talk about how the Chechen apartment building bombings were f- a false flag attack. And that may or may not be true, but but also Jamie Kirchick has written like multiple things, it's like this other plane full of like an opposition group in Russia that went down and he's saying like that was done by the Russian government. I mean, extreme assertions here um, that if we were to assert them remotely about the U.S. government we would be called lunatic conspiracy theorists who have zero credibility. Yeah. So it's just curious the way that they've shaped the narrative and projected kind of anyone who voices that whatsoever about any non ally country is somehow okay. And you remember, and this is just a, this is a funny side note, but remember how I showed you some of those videos from radio free Europe and you were like, yeah. Whoa, that's so weird. They look like, um, we are change Canon D yeah. videos, almost like they were filmed in this shaky yeah. cam man on the street, documentarian style. And that shit's effective. I mean, it's visceral when you watch something, when it looks like that, it, it adds more power to the message. And you have to think for yourself, why are, why is radio free Europe out in the streets of Russia trying to like do activism during Sochi about the gay law. Yeah. Like why is a state sponsored organization trying to rally people up in Russia during Sochi about the gay law and and on like a Canon HD, like grassroots, like raw weird documentary thing. It's like, what in the hell is going on? Yeah. It brings it back to the whole thing that you said, which is that this is a state policy. It was a day of celebration for gay Americans and their allies. New York's annual Gay Pride Parade took place on June 30th, just days after the U.S. Supreme Court made two rulings that support the cause of same-sex marriage. For Russian Americans and others from the former Soviet Union, there was another reason for pride. It was the first time the Russian-speaking gay community had a float in the parade, showing off their roots. I hope KGB is not here to slash our ties at the last moment. Other participants in the Russian delegation shared their excitement at being able to celebrate gay culture, something they can't do openly at home. And that's the video roundup from Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. I just wanted to mention this because this is something that I think is in a very important key linkage between neoconservative intellectuals and gov- the U.S. government. And it goes all the way back to the 1960s. Irving Kristol, you know, considered the grandfather of neoconservatism, he wrote a, a regular publication called Encounter Magazine. And it was like a literary journal. It wasn't even like writings on politics. It was intellectual sort of philosophy or, you know, just more abstract kind of writings, but sort of coming from that perspective. This is the interesting part about this magazine is that it was actually funded covertly by a CIA front philanthropist group. 
that acted like they were this, these like intellectual philanthropists, but they were actually the CIA. Whoa. You admit to working for the CIA. Yeah. What's that about? Oh, back in the 1950s, uh, I was in London co-editing Encounter magazine with Stephen Spender that it was revealed that, in fact, we thought we were being subsidized by an American foundation called the Farfield Foundation. And, in fact, that was a front for the CIA, and it was CIA money. How'd you find and out? It was made public in the press. I don't know how they found out. Somebody leaked, obviously. Uh, but I didn't inquire, and I didn't care, really. What was your reaction at the time? I was annoyed. I didn't want to work with the CIA. Why would they want to fund the Encounter now, magazine? That's why I'm, there were rumors that uh, there was some government money behind it. But the question occurred to me that just occurred to you. Why on earth would they want to fund a magazine that Stephen Spender and I were editing? He claims he didn't know. So the whole time he's writing for this magazine, um, which he, I believe, co-founded, uh, he was being funded entirely by the CIA. Um, which, <laughs> which, if you take it at face value, if you believe that he didn't know about it, then it almost, I mean, it doesn't really matter if he knew about it or not, because what you see happening there is a mutual beneficial relationship between the United mm -hmm. States government and the ideas of neoconservatism. Of he knew it was, come on. And, but, but let's just in theory say that he sure. didn't know. It's like that shows that the U.S. government, you know, because I think it oversimplifies things too much to think even if he did know that they were like paying for this to be, to be like right. sort of launched in the public consciousness. I think that it just shows that there was, there is an extreme mutual benefit between the U.S. government's agenda, foreign policy agenda, and these influential ideas. They wanted to help these ideas perpetuate and flourish because, because they, it helps them essentially of course yeah of course mostly just, just so it's just so hypocritical for them to like overreact so much about russia and crimea and i'm not saying it's not worth reacting but when when we find out that the usaid as we've talked about multiple times that they invested openly five billion dollars in ukraine over the last two decades for their democratic future and then we find out that the usaid is basically acting like the cia since Ukraine's independence in 1991, the United States has supported Ukrainians as they build democratic skills and institutions. We've invested over $5 billion to assist Ukraine in these and other goals that will ensure a secure and prosperous and democratic Ukraine. They had a fake Twitter account in Cuba. They had like a fake Cuban Twitter. Did you hear about this? Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. I mean, it shows you what God knows what they're doing everywhere else. If this is like a so-called aid organization that we, you know, it's like the CIA, of course, we know what they're doing, you know, different overt organizations that are like obviously actively trying to do regime change. And then you find out that USAID, which is supposed to be an aid organization helping like children <laughs> uh -huh. um, is actually actively pursuing regime change. You see Edward Snowden's slides about using social media for propaganda and to like gain access to political information that you can use to influence the outcome of, of other countries. I mean, this is some scary shit here. It is. And, and then on the, on the surface, I mean, a lot of these neoconservative groups and stuff, I mean, with the exception of like a, a just like a couple people, most of them seem pretty benign and boring and droll and just like just like they do, like they wouldn't have any influence. You wouldn't expect them to have this much influence. But 
in Washington, D.C., there are hundreds of these think tanks. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, William Crystal, I mean, I'm sorry, not William Crystal, Irving Crystal, his father, um, became a senior fellow at this think tank um, that was founded in the 30s. They've existed since the 30s, which wow. is crazy to me, called the American Enterprise Institute. And the American Enterprise Institute's mission statement is to defend the principles and improve the institutions of American freedom and democratic capitalism. Um, so this this was widely considered to be like the biggest, most influential neoconservative think tank, like before sort of like the next generation of neoconservatives, like the Bill Crystals and people like that. So Irving Crystal was a part of this think tank for many, many years. Um, and... And during this time, like, you know, after he, he stopped writing for Encounter magazine, um, his, he, he wasn't a very well-known public figure at all. It was more just, he was like well-known among intellectual thinkers and like geostrate, uh, geostrategic political thinkers and government people. And in the seventies, that's when people like Rumsfeld and Cheney were sort of rising through the ranks, um, through the Nixon and Ford administrations. And then eventually... Um, we go all the way to like the, you know, the first George H. Bush administration. And that's when people like Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz uh, got reunited, um, who later, be, you know, went into the next Bush administration and were key architects in the Iraq war. And during the Clinton administration, um, right after the fall of the Soviet Union, there was this, there was a group of new neoconservatives um, comprised of Ir Irving Crystal's son, William Crystal. And uh, another guy named Robert Kagan, um, they were two of the co-founders of what, of what um, became the Project for the New American Century. You know, as far as I'm concerned, the most influential think tank or just the most influential group of people over what the Bush administration. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Doing. And Do you want to talk about who was on the board of that so people understand? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. So this, I guess more just to cut more directly to it. You know, I can go through, you know, there's all these letters that they sent out to Clinton trying to urge him to invade Iraq in 1996. Um, there's the Rebuilding America's Defenses document, which talks about needing a new Pearl Harbor. So there's that, there's all that shit. And there was all these different signatories of those documents, you know, and that in and of itself is definitely an interesting connection that people like Richard Pearl, um, Wolfowitz and, and all these people who weren't in government at the time signed this document to send to President Clinton or sign this document talking about how we need a new Pearl Harbor. That's interesting in and of itself. But I think what's more interesting is that after the election of George W. Bush, um, some of, and not just some, but like over 20 of PNAC's members and signatories were appointed to key positions in the Bush uh, White House, like literally. Um, and I could just really quickly re read off this list. Yeah, Elliot Abrams, uh, special assistant to the president, um, Richard Armitage, De deputy secretary of state, John Bolton, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Dick Cheney, Elliot Cohen, defense policy advisory board, Seth Kropsky, international broadcasting bureau, Paula, Paula Dabriansky, undersecretary of state, Aaron Felberg, Francis Fukuyama, president of the, uh, the president's council on bioethics. I mean, the list goes on and on of all these people who directly were involved in writing these extremely influential um, letters for the Project for the New American Century and landed directly into the Bush administration in key positions. 
Um, and even Richard Pearl did. I mean, he was on the Defense Policy Advisory Board Committee uh, for Bush. Um, but it's it's not just PNAC that had an influence. It's 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 these people. It's people like Richard yeah. Pearl and William Crystal and Robert Kagan. Um, in the letter that they wrote uh, to Clinton, where they urged Clinton to attack Iraq. Um, do you remember hearing about that? But like even before rebuilding America's defenses, they wrote a letter. Uh, to Clinton. No. So they wrote a letter to Bill Clinton. When? Oh, um, during Clinton. January okay. 26, 1998. Paul Jesus. Wolfowitz, James Woolsey, Donald Rumsfeld, William Crystal, Richard Pearl, Francis Fukuyama, um, Robert Kagan, they all signed this letter. And the letter is only six paragraphs long. It's very, very short. Um, and it starts out with saying, like, Dear the Honorable William Jefferson Clinton. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> But the, basically the letter, the most important part of it to take away is that it uses the, the word, the phrase weapons of mass destruction five times what? in a six paragraph letter whoa, 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 in wait. relationship to Iraq. Whoa, this was in 98. Yeah, I shit you not. Holy shit. So this like this phrase weapons of oh mass destruction, God. weapons of mass destruction, weapons of mass destruction. I mean, there it's five times it's used in full, not even as an acronym at that point. I mean, they spell the whole fucking phrase out. So, so that was, that was happening before Bush got into office. Wow. Oh, it's so obvious why they wanted to rebrand themselves. I mean, God, they were trying this, this rhetoric back then. And it just like got so played out. Like it got so, so played out and so mocked. Of course they had to do a whole rebranding effort. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's and, amazing. Oh, and here's another interesting thing. So like, you know, this is, this is an excuse that Crystal and Kagan have used repeatedly. Even Wolfowitz have used this excuse. They've said things like when asked, well, weren't you the signatory of this document? Like, obviously you worked with these people and helped right. devise this policy before you got into the administration. And they'll always say things like, well, like Crystal will be like, well, you know, I'd like to think we had a lot of influence, but you know, nobody ever, like we didn't work with anybody. Oh yeah. I might've, uh, yeah, I think we wrote that letter to Clinton. Um, I think it was maybe me and and so and so. And uh, but you know, not that many people read it. And and then and then yeah, when, they poo poo their influence. Yeah, and then like Wolfowitz will be like, yeah, I think I signed that thing, but like I didn't really have anything to do with it and, and all this shit, right? Uh, Mr. Wolfowitz, as a uh, key architect of the project for a new American century, um, you co-authored a document calling for a new American empire around the world um, that would use nuclear weapons, invade countries that never threaten the U.S and keep down potential rivals to American economic and military power. Um, do you think your project for empire are worth, are worth a thousand of innocent Iraqi and American lives? I was not a key architect of that project. I was <laughs> listed on some of their things. Let, you know, there's, there's an attempt to tie a whole lot of things that are going on now back to a document that was drafted uh, by my staff when I was in the first Bush administration. So you're well, like, oh yeah, that's how they do it. Remember when you was it Richard Pearl arguing with Noam Chomsky? Yeah. Or yeah, remember when he was like Noam Chomsky would point out all of these things that like were written specifically by Pearl, and Pearl's argument every time would be like, oh okay, you're picking out one paragraph from like dozens of documents. Oh, I'm sorry, did I say that? Like totally minimizing everything that Chomsky said that like actually was implemented that they had written about. It was like yeah. these blueprints yeah. and that's their strategy to just be like, Oh, Oh, oh okay. Conspiracy theorists. Oh, you think we wrote this all out before we did it? It's like, yeah, you did. Yeah. Well, here's, yeah, the you did. And, and yeah, you wrote it all out, but now you <laughs> claim that 
you know, you have this very loose connection and people yeah, are trying yeah, to draw yeah, this yeah. quote conspiracy around all you guys or whatever. But the truth of it is they can't escape this, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah. You could argue, yeah, he just signed, you know, Wolfowitz just signed rebuilding America's defenses, but maybe he didn't help write it or whatever. Okay. Let's accept that bullshit premise. But this, it doesn't change the fact that Robert Kagan and William Crystal in the year 2000, wrote a book called Crisis and Opportunity in American Foreign Policy, or American Foreign and Defense Policy. <laughs> um, and in the book, it's all these articles by Robert Kagan, by William Crystal, by Frederick Kagan, because um, all the entire Kagan family are pretty much like war historians and shit. It's really bizarre. Um, but in the book, Paul Wolfowitz has an entire section of the book written by him. Whoops. Whoops. So, yeah, I mean... Okay, yeah, there's no proof that Wolfowitz maybe was involved in, you know, the rebuilding America's defenses, but here's him co-authoring parts of a book where he's making money, you know, I mean, they probably had to divide up the money made from the book to Wolfowitz and pay him for his work in here. So it's like, this is, this is, they, their relationship clearly goes much deeper than just signing the letter is all I'm saying. And, right. and you know, there's really not it's not really up for debate, but they keep denying it. And that's in and of itself telling it's like they're, that's part of the rebranding effort is to disassociate mm -hmm. the Bush administration from the Bush administration and its policies from these people. Yeah. And just smear, smear, smear anyone who even tries to point it yeah. out. You know, you think of these people, Oh, they're intellectuals. They'll own it. You know, they're not, they're not embarrassed of it. They're proud of what they did. But in reality, they're doing the exact same thing. The Republican party did to Bush is they're right. trying to disassociate themselves from him because he's kryptonite to like having any influence after him. Like you and have of course, to, and of course it all falls, he, you know, he fell on his own sword. Not of course, not meaning that he was actually held accountable for anything, but I mean him and his public image. And, and so to them, even though they were behind him the whole way, they're able to disassociate themselves from him because everyone just kind of remembers him. Yeah. It's like him and Cheney and, you know, Rumsfeld to a certain extent, but there's all these other players that still are there Mm -hmm. But they've, you know, as you're saying, they've just kind of like distanced themselves from those very kryptonite, like forefront people. Oh, absolutely. And, and they've done it. It seemed like they've actually been pretty effective at it. I mean, oh, to a yeah. certain extent, you know, I mean, some of the old faces like William Crystal and, and Kagan, they still get hassled everywhere they go on the media about being neocons or whatever. And they just yeah, laugh they, it but off. You, but Bill Crystal's on um, Crossfire yeah. every day, dude. He's on like twice a week and i'm just like why is this person well i think like they've they've this is like their relaunch launching yeah. point it's like now is the time for them to come back out i mean dan senor you know was mitt romney's foreign policy advisor but he you, now you're starting to see him on all these shows too going out and talking about shit and he wasn't really a public figure for a long time um right so so around the time that this this letter was sent to clinton telling him basically to go into iraq um, and just repeating weapons of mass destruction over and over and over again. Uh, Richard Pearl, Douglas Fife, who are two other co-signatories of this letter and the Rebuilding America's Defenses document, they presented um, another document to who was the sitting prime minister in Israel at the time, Benjamin Netanyahu, um, this think tank, and I, the name escapes me right now, but it's a different think tank, but it's essentially like, a very small, like one-off little think tank that was just like only wrote, I think this one document and the document is described as called the clean break strategy. Um, and 
and in reality, um, many people who have seen this document that they wrote for Benjamin Netanyahu, I believe in 1996, they were they were paid to write this strategy uh, up. And it's considered to be the blueprint for not just the invasion of Iraq, which they also happen to advocate in there. They advocate overthrowing Saddam Hussein, waging proxy warfare against Syria, Lebanon, and Iran in the document. But they also advocate for building more Israeli settlements on Palestinian land. They advocate for building more walls in Gaza, which they actually did. A lot of this clean break strategy was followed in Israel. It's, it's also a blueprint for the war on terror in the way that we treat terror suspects because it was advocating for a much harsher view and a much more preemptive way of defeating Hamas and Hezbollah. So already kind of adopting, you know, the, the former Israeli defense minister who said on the morning of 9-11, we need to start, you know, this is a game changer. We need to start basically acting like Israel does with the war on terror. Yeah, so it's exactly. Almost like they, it's almost like they were already seen as how Israel treated Hamas and like dealt like really harshly with like dissidents and stuff. And they were like almost like asserting that blueprint back then. Which is fundamentally obviously creates a, a very big problem where, you know, it, it could be really simple about it and say, oh, well, all these neoconservatives are just Zionists and they... They, they, you know, they, they love Israel and hate Arabs, but I think it's more complicated than that, where it's like they actually were very influenced by, there was cross influence between the neoconservatives and the Israeli government policy at the time. These very prominent neoconservative writers to, to write this clean break strategy. And that's also another instance where when Richard Pearl is asked what his involvement was in that strategy, he'll say, oh, I think I put my name on that, but I don't even remember what it said. I mean, like he literally like acts like he had nothing to do with it. Uh, Richard, could you take us back to that memo that you, Doug Fife and others wrote about in 1996 for the incoming Netanyahu administration at the time? Because so much goes back to that original document being the cornerstone of a neocon foreign policy. Right. Well, let, let me say a couple of things about the document first. It was not written for uh, um, uh, the incoming Israeli prime minister, who's probably again going to be the incoming Israeli prime minister, Netanyahu. It, uh, it was the product of a study group. In fact, it was written by, uh, essentially by one person without much regard to the study group, uh, because I don't think it met very often. I never met with the study group. My name was on this because I had signed up for the study group. So I, I didn't approve it. I didn't read it. Having said that, I don't see any, uh, any reason to disagree with its uh, main points. You know, more bullshit. And this is like, they're, they constantly do this. It's very surreal, actually. How well, that's the problem, so and, and, and it's great how they're able to deflect everything and call everyone anti-Semitic if you simply point out, like, anything with their pro-Israel stuff, but mm -hmm. you're right, it goes more beyond just, like, nationalism for Israel or the fact that they may be Jewish or, or Israeli or believe in Israel's uh, is right to exist. It goes beyond that, and it's, like, using, like, strategically adopting what they've seen work in Israel. Yeah. Like, cold-blooded. Like like yeah, it's, like, strategizing, like, beyond just, like, the sup superficial, like, oh, no, it's just about, like, nationalism. It's about this and that. And, like, no, it goes beyond that. It's, like, we're talking about, like, military strategy. Yeah, and if you want to, you know, I mean, and this will be, like, 
I won't really talk too much more about this because it's yeah, it's 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 like a they, it's like a honey trap that they've set up so that like you yeah. get stuck in this argument of saying, oh, well, you must have dual loyalties, you know, and, and all this shit. But that's really what it is, what you've described. And Francis Fukuyama is literally one of the only neoconservatives that I've been able to find ever like that has spoken honestly about the subject because all of them use that diversionary tactic. Even Jamie Kerchick has used it at least three different times. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, he's used it hundreds of times on Twitter. We've seen his assholery on there where he's constantly, you know, equating um, anti-neoconservative writing or accusations to anti-Semitism. But I mean, he's actually written full articles and done like debates with people who've written uh, critical writings on neoconservatism and he's tried to trap him in that trap. I think it's really irresponsible to accuse Jews. I think it's very irresponsible to accuse Jews, especially in the government, of dual loyalties. You're accusing them of treason and that is inappropriate and that's beyond the line. Joe, you wrote, Joe, you wrote that the Iraq war was because of neocons plumping for war for Israel. And you, you said that it raised the question of dual loyalties. That's what you wrote. And I think one of the greatest lies of this whole Israel debate is the claim that you hear by so many people. That you can't criticize Israel without being called an anti-Semite. Which is so annoying. Because I've never heard anyone legitimately criticize Israel and be called an anti-Semite for it. I've heard anti-Semites, well, <laughs> it depends on what you said and depends on who said Unless very brave man for, for going after okay. the neocons. I mean, but come on, seriously, I mean, bullying, who's being bullied here? I mean, you, in particular, you, you accused Jewish neoconservatives, is what you said, mm-hmm. of plumping for war with Iran. Mm-hmm. So yes. Jewish neocons surrounding uh, John McCain and yes. his vessel, Sarah Palin, yes. and polluting their minds. Okay, I think that's, <laughs> so, did, so did Don Rumsfeld. So did Dick Cheney. To my knowledge, they're not, they're, they're pretty, they're, they're Gentiles, okay? So why is it the Jewish neoconservatives who are singled out? That's what I want to know. But Francis Fukuyama um, was at a, a talk with William Crystal and a few other of the PNAC signatories. And someone from the audience asked that question. You know, a lot of people ask this question when you see these neoconservative Q&A sessions which is what is the connection between like Zionism and neoconservatism and, you know, why do you prefer Israel? How did this reputation even come about? And Francis Fukuyama just straight out said, well, I think it's a shame that a lot of my fellow neoconservatives have adopted what I see as an extremely far right Israeli Likud perspective on what the Muslim and Arab societies are actually like. Uh, well, just on this question of Israel, um, I, I think that first of all, the the problem uh, is not, uh, you know, that I, I think that Israel is important to many neoconservatives. The problem is not divided loyalties or putting Israel's interest ahead of the United States. I, what I said in my argument with Krauthammer is the problem is that many uh, neoconservatives have adopted the point of view, the strategic uh, prism of many hardliners on the Israeli right, including their interpretation of Arab motives and behavior, you know, this idea that the Arabs don't understand any principles of legitimacy, it's only force that, that you know, they respect, uh, this sort of thing, which then dictates a whole way of dealing with that region as a whole. And I just said, uh, I think that that's, you know, that was a big, um, uh, that was a big mistake. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, that, that continues to be a problem. I mean. Krauthammer said that's anti-Semitism, but I just don't believe that that's really what, what was motivating me. Um. And he didn't use this exact language, 
but he was essentially saying, I can paraphrase him, that the Israeli right-wing Likud view of the Arab world and Muslims is one of like racism. And it's actually like, it's, it stems from this idea of like superiority and painting Arab and Muslims and Palestinians as, as animals, as subhuman. Um, to be able to like, you know, as an excuse or as like a pretext for this sort of extremely hawkish military viewpoint. I mean, you have to really think, where does that come from? Because people, you know, have always been racist in war and stuff, but it's really the racism in this specific case that greased the skids for the war on terror to be so effective. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the racism the just made it like of Islamophobia. Yeah. yeah. It was like rubbing Vaseline on like a luge and just like flying down. It's like, <laughs> you know, the Israelis had developed such a sort of crude and, you know, offensive, but also effective way of looking at Arab and Muslim societies that the United States just immediately adopted that viewpoint, you know, and you won't really hear Bush, you know, and Rumsfeld talking about that viewpoint and, and, and being racist on TV, but it was like the climate that was created by a lot of these neoconservative groups. And by a lot of like the people like Rupert Murdoch, who owned Fox News, which is sort of like the dumbed down neoconservative rhetoric outlet, but he also owned the Weekly Standard at the complete other end of the spectrum, the intellectual influence. Yeah, and can we tell, can we remind people really quickly what Bill Kristol um, wrote about? This was very recently before all this Kerchik stuff went down with, I, I'm sorry, with the RT hijacking of the narrative and, and using it to promote anti Russian fervor. But Bill Kristol had written an article kind of outlining the goals of FPI um, saying that they needed to rally people, that the only thing missing to kind of reassert like dominance over Russia and how Russia is this new, like re, re what was the actual thing in the mission statement? Basically that Russia is another player that we need to be yeah, asserting ourselves against. Like rising China global power, yeah. China and Russia. And in the article, and we'll link to the truth dig piece again, everyone needs to read it if you haven't already, but it basically just William Crystal's saying the only thing that's missing is the rallying, the rallying to get people behind another war, to get people behind this new like standoff with Russia is the rallying. And so when you tie that together with kind of his puppets, which is people like Jamie Kerchick, like Rosie Gray and like Eli Lake, who else is doing the rallying for them? I mean, it's, these are the people doing the rallying. The rallying is making people turn against Russia in every sense of the word. Of course, Russia is not a perfect country. Of course, like Putin is not a good guy. Like, but, but it's just very strange and telling when you have them writing out what they need to do, what they're looking to do. And then it's fucking happening with the people who are working for them. That's not a conspiracy. Yeah. This is what's happening. The Weekly Standard, I mean, they wrote about Iraq and weapons of mass destruction for years before Bush got into office as well. You know, after they wrote this letter to Clinton, like it was one of their biggest, I mean, it was just one of their regularly occurring things like that they would, they would talk about. And they were also one of the people, uh, the group, um, the outlets that was trying to drum up all this fear about Al Qaeda and bin Laden uh, in the very late nineties too. Um, and, you know, it, this also can tie into the anthrax a little bit. Uh, William Crystal and Robert Kagan uh, said that it was very likely that Saddam Hussein was behind the anthrax attacks in uh, October 29th of 2001. Um, 
And that was the reason why we need to, that the U.S. and Bush has no choice but to destroy the Iraqi government of Saddam Hussein. So a lot of so these other- So you're saying Bill Crystal was one of the first people to reject that propaganda and the narrative early on. Yeah. About so, Iraq ties to anthrax. So interesting. Here, so here's the interesting like trifecta. Um, so Robert Kagan, the co-founder of PNAC, uh, during- during the um, like the immediate wake of 9/11, was writing a bunch of articles and and eventually wrote like a New York Times best-selling book about how Amer- Europe just doesn't understand America because we're this like you know strong um, a, a nation with a destiny to fulfill this like mission to spread democracy all over the world and like Europe can't stand in our way and and I mean, he kind of spread a lot of that rhetoric out there and that's i think what helped grease the skids for sort of the eventual un vote where it was like inevitable where it was like well we might you know fuck the un essentially um crystal planted a bunch of the seeds about wmds in iraq i mean he was one of the ones along with pearl who was planting those seeds constantly uh before the invasion i mean before 9-11 um richard pearl went on television and said that the next attack was not going to be the same after 9-11 he said that it was going to be biological um so i mean just in in either these guys were extremely prescient um or they were influencing you know or maybe both maybe they were very prescient and also influencing people to like commit horrible crimes you know we started to have an extreme backlash uh like two or three years into the iraq war against it and people like William Crystal and Dan Senior sort of became like celebrities of the wrong kind. Richard Pearl was uh, was extremely uh, hated, um, and I think that these people, yeah, they had to sort of like go back into hiding, and that's kind of what they did. They laid low for a few years. Um, they tried to do things to even dis- disassociate themselves from neoconservatism, and it gets really interesting when, and actually, really surreal. When you watch a video of Richard Pearl um, inviting, he invited like 20 authors to come and, and do a Q&A session with him where he was letting them ask him questions about an op-ed that he wrote about how there, the literally the subject of the op-ed was there is no such thing as a neoconservative foreign policy. And all Excuse of, me? And all of you authors what? who've spent your the last decade writing about this neoconservative foreign policy, I'm here to tell you that you've written garbage. It's all false. None of it's true. There's no such thing. And I'm going to sit here and like just totally stoically deny it up and down. That uh, there is a neoconservative foreign policy, that it was the policy that dominated uh, the Bush administration and that the people who um, subscribe to it uh, bear responsibility for the deplorable state of the world. None of that is true, of course. Um, it's super interesting how that's their, it's so weird, how even after all of that, after everything that happened, even after pinpointing like how these people have inserted the wrong narrative at the wrong time to get the policy going in that direction, even after all of this is laid out, they can still sit there and say, I don't know what you're talking about. There is no, it, it's like, <laughs> it's, 
it's just like deny that it exists. It's just like saying like there is no conservative media. It's the liberal media. Yeah, there yeah, is yeah, no yeah. this. It's that. Mm-hmm. Like this isn't real. And what you're seeing is not real. It's like don't don't mind the red door. The red door doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah. like a red door right there. It's like it's just such a weird strategy. And it I guess it just makes it so much harder to argue because you're like, well, fuck, now I'm on the defense trying to explain that it even exists. Well, no, like, let alone like interrogate you about like what you did. It is a very clever misdirection attempt. And I think Jamie Kirchick wrote an article in 2006, maybe even a little later, maybe 2008 about how, um, it's intellectually dishonest to call people neoconservatives simply because they want a more muscular U S foreign policy. And, and they always do this argument where it's like, and that's, you know, according to polls, what almost all Americans believe we should have. So are you saying, so what you're saying is that I'm just like most of America and that that's not a neoconservative belief at all. That's like an, a normal American tradition to believe that. That's the problem is that when you have military aggression being spouted off from like every single mainstream media channel, when 90% of the media is owned by six corporations, then of course polls are going to reflect like people not knowing any better and being like, yeah, we should like protect the homeland. It's like just a self-fulfilling prophecy of like yeah. militarism and like American exceptionalism. It's like, well, the majority of people like think that America is exceptional. It's like, well, why the fuck do you think they think that? Yeah, no, it's, it's actually really <laughs> interesting that they like wait 10 years for a lot of these ideas to soak in to the mainstream consciousness and um, like reframe a lot of the ways that we look at things. And then they sort of like sit back and be like, well, like, especially someone like Robert Kagan, who, which is really interesting. Robert Kagan is probably one of the like lesser known figures in this movement. And talk about who he is really quick. Robert Kagan is um, the husband of Victoria Newland, who was the U.S. NATO ambassador under George W. Bush. Um, and now she's serving as the spokesperson for the Department of State. Um, she was caught recently on a leaked phone call saying, fuck the EU. And basically saying who they were going to put into the Ukrainian government. Yeah. When it got overthrown. When I talked to Jeff Feltman this morning, he had a new name for the UN guy, Robert Seri. Did I write yeah. you that this morning? Yeah, okay. I saw that. He, he's now gotten both Seri and Ban Ki-moon to agree that Seri could come in Monday or Tuesday. Okay. So that would be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the U.N. help glue it. And, you know, and I think we've got to do something to make it stick together, because you can be pretty sure that if it does, if it does start to gain altitude, the Russians will be working behind the scenes to try to torpedo it. Fuck the EU. No, exactly. So it's really interesting. And and Robert Kagan was asked on C-SPAN, you know, how does this all work? How does it work that your wife, um, you know, advised Dick Cheney? you know, during Bush and that now she is um, spokesperson for Obama's State Department. And how do you explain that you yourself were Mitt Romney's foreign policy advisor during his campaign, but then now you're advising Hillary Clinton in the Pentagon? And he was just like, you know, I think a lot of people outside of Washington have this cartoonish view that, um, that you know, there's all these, like, it's like the Democrats versus the Republicans. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But in reality... There is a bipartisan tradition, and this is what he said that's actually true, but he's saying it as if it's a good thing. This is a how does it work question. <clears throat> You're married to Victoria Newland. The last time she was here, she was the ambassador to NATO under the Bush administration. Spokesman at the State Department prior to being NATO ambassador, she worked as the foreign policy advisor for Dick Cheney. 
outsiders looking in say, you know, the conspiracy theorists out there want to know, how does this work? Well, again, I'm glad, by the way, she's the face of American foreign policy of the world and not, and not someone like me. So that's, that's one good thing. You know, I think the people outside Washington, perhaps, um, have a more cartoonish view of things than, than those of us who've, who've worked in Washington for a long time. I mean, my wife and I have both been in Washington when we're not overseas since 1982. It's a long time. Uh, the foreign policy community, people who really make foreign policy their profession, whether they're in government or in the think tanks, uh, it's a community. It's a small community. But sometimes people, I think, on the outside say, well, she worked for this person and she worked for that person. They don't understand there is something of a bipartisan foreign policy tradition in the United States, which she embodies, really. Go. Well, as outsiders, though, looking at this process, um, would you be concerned that everybody knows everybody and they're all, you know, different parties working behind the scenes together? Well, you know, uh, paranoia is, you know, is a great quality in America, as Richard Hofstetter once pointed out, but um, it, I think it's good. I think the fact that people of different parties... This is from the Wall Street Journal. Mr. Kagan serves on the Foreign Policy Advisory Board of Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, but more notably in this election season is a foreign policy advisor to the presidential campaign of Mitt Romney. What about the first one? What's that all about? Uh, well, Secretary Clinton has set up this uh, uh, Foreign Affairs Policy Board, it's called, and uh, it's a bipartisan group. Again, you've been known as a neoconservative. Is that a fair label? I'm not thrilled with the c label because I don't know what it means anymore, but okay. that's what, right. I dare say we will find more continuity, and I know this is a horrific thing to say, uh, between George W. Bush's foreign policies and, some, and, and also in terms of dealing with terror and some of Barack Obama's policies that right there is absolutely amazing it's like and i think people really need to think about this for one second about just the two-party system when you have this guy who did serve for mitt romney and now he's advising for hillary clinton his wife is there working for obama and then he she worked for dick cheney and it's like what is going on here i mean and why does why is the foreign policy continuous and why is there barely any change i mean yeah we're not going in there with ground troops but i mean there there is like little to no change when it comes to how the us uh exerts itself around the world i mean that there there never is and it's really just comes down to these the minutia of domestic policy it's just i just think it's really important for people to realize that and like i hear people all the time still saying can you imagine if john mccain won we'd be in iran right now it's like i i don't okay so is that a reason why we should have voted for obama like to like prolong the war that's coming <laughs> like <laughs> no it's it's such bullshit i mean and that and i think that's one of the interesting things about kagan and i think he transcends in a lot of ways like the traditional ways that you can describe these people neoconservative neoliberal war hawks or whatever kagan is someone who seems totally transparent at least on the front of that there is no difference between Democrat and Republican when it comes to foreign policy. And when you listen to a lot of his talks and, and like you hear him and read some of his writings, it almost mirrors in a way some of the writings by Chomsky and Howard Zinn. And you're, and you're thinking to yourself, this is really fascinating that a guy who is so hawkish, who has this much influence in government and who is related to all these horrible foreign policy positions is actually writing things that you would see in a Howard Zinn book about how 
um, American hegemony has existed since post-World War II, and that since post-World War II, we have always been overthrowing democratically. You know, we've always been trying to spread democracy through our military and all this stuff. But what the difference is, is that to someone like Chomsky and Zinn, those things are bad. And to someone like Kagan, those things are good. And they're in the tradition of the American way. Um, and that they're like embedded in our heritage as Americans. Which is that we should, we should be willing to use our military to advance our ideals. I mean, these days that's conceived of as a radical idea and only a very small fringe of Americans could possibly believe that. But uh, what, I've, what I've discovered in my researches and what, 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 I, what I think I'm able to demonstrate time and again uh, in my book uh, is that that is a mainstream, traditional American view. People call neoconservatism, I actually call a mainstream bipartisan view that has been dominant uh, in this country and in this town uh, for quite some time. Everybody from Dean Acheson to to John F. Kennedy to Ronald Reagan. And of course, someone like him and Crystal will always deny that our foreign policy is dictated by corporations or industry, but, but but they agree in part with Chomsky and Zinn, that our foreign policy took a drastic turn after World War II of one of preemption and one that actually was not operating in terms of like defense anymore at all. Um, But Chomsky and Zinn will, will make the case that it was corporations and, and, you know, and like if we wanted to invade this country, it wasn't necessarily because of communism, but it was because to protect, protect this trade route, you know, for this, and it's all, and it all, yeah, it all comes back to, yeah, 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 yeah. Like them kind of poo-pooing that as well and just being like, no, it just all fit in like that. Yeah. Like, but someone like, like acting as if, uh, but what I wanted to say one thing really quickly, um, is that it, it was based on a myth. The myth was that America basically ended world war two, that America like defeated the Nazis. And, and so it's almost like America gave itself the moral authority and the moral exceptionalism from that point forward to do whatever the fuck it wanted preemptively around the world. But it's all based on a lie. I mean, that really, if anyone studied or watched, you know, the untold history of the United States, I mean, it's far from the truth that the U S like came in and saved the day in world war two, but it does seem like that's when things shifted in terms of like that moral exceptionalism and like the reassertion of, of the U S in terms of like the main superpower moving forward. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even Cenk Uger, you know, I've seen him say this, which I think is pretty accurate, that the CIA was sort of at its outset designed to be like an arm of corporate military, paramilitary force of corporations. We, you know, we can't possibly sell these things to the American public as for morals or or any sort of justifications. The CIA will carry out a lot of the paramilitary operations to protect, you know, sugar uh, exports or things like that. And that is what was one of the largest forces that drove the Cold War was it was because like we, you know, we want to protect this whole new world order of corporate money and industry and sort of trade internationally that we you know the soviet union is like in our way yeah and i mean even that i mean just think about even just that that whole framing of the debate when it's like capitalism's good communism's bad i mean corporations i mean like if you're if you're looking at the marriage of how it started early on of course with corporate influence over the u.s government and like western governments but like that it's just amazing looking back at how strong that was and how much like that played a role into the the um the cold war 
it's just something that we don't really think about is how, you know, we think about it now is like, yeah, there's like this corporatocracy crushing yeah. everyone. It's like never been more overt, but it really did start. Oh, oh my God. Way yeah. long ago. Um, and helped and helped win out. I mean, and even like Nazi Germany, like all the corporations that were benefiting yeah. then that have never been held accountable. You know, that's just like an untold, another part mm -hmm. of history that's just like and, untold. And when you, you know, you, um, Robert Kagan tries to rewrite American history and even this is what's most amusing. I mean, you could make the argument that we've always had like a doctrine of preemption, even since before, you know, all the way back to World War II. But the rhetoric wasn't like that back then. I mean, we, with Iraq, that was a very clear case of pure preemption. You know, one of the most egregious just cases of pure a pure preemptive warfare based on zero threat whatsoever um you know even vietnam made more sense a lot of these other wars and the rhetoric given to them made more logical sense on its face not saying that they were actually good or that they were logical but what he tries to even do is he tries to go back to the founding fathers and he claims that the declaration of independence is one of the most important foreign policy documents of our country um, which is an extremely bizarre thing to say. You think, well, what the fuck does that mean? How does he justify that? He claims that there is wording in the Declaration of Independence. I mean, I mean, and there is, but he interprets it as the, the wording that says that um, to preserve the rights of the freedom of man. By that, the Founding Fathers meant that it was our duty to provide freedom to man worldwide. That's went absurd. Beyond, went can, you imagine if another, can you imagine if another country was just like, well, it says in our constitution yeah, yeah. that we could like protect man. So like, that's why we're doing this. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then so to justify that rationale, he goes back to some of the perspectives that a lot of Americans had back then, that they were the greatest nation on earth and that they had this destiny to fulfill. And, and does that make it right? Like, just, like, even if that were true, that the Founding Fathers said that and somehow had this expansionist mindset in place would that be okay like no, none of that even makes sense. i don't even think he's trying to say that i i mean my theory about what he's doing is he's almost trying to like clear the playing field so much to like make people forget who neoconservatives were and like what damage they did or something yeah so he could be like wait no like we never see we were just always part of the american tradition like we were never like a divergent the that mode of thought we're just always here it's just weird it's just weirdness it gets really bizarre when you really get deep mm -hmm. into this someone called into the c-span program he was on and they asked him you know well what do you have to say to people who think that this is you know this is imperialism what you're describing and that we're doing this to help, like make money and just like you know spread our power and he said well he said we are a nation of selfish people and sometimes our national ideals spreading democracy will run parallel to a self-interested goal. He doesn't really elaborate on it, but he acknowledges that the idea exists. Uh, we also take actions that are in our self-interest, and sometimes uh, we blend the two, and I thought that's what you meant by blurring things, that we, we blend the, our idealistic motives and our self-interested motives, um, that we are, you know, we're a nation of human beings, and human beings are selfish people. That's a really, really tricky talking point, too, that I've heard a lot lately yeah it's like it's well like, you know well, what do you we can't help if yeah. it like lines up with imperialist yeah, it's like, come goals on. it's like come on just grow up this is how the world yeah, works grow up. like this is yeah this is the way the world works like sometimes interests have to align and you're like but why wait but one interest does not mean that the other one like isn't influenced by that like your goal of imperialism is obviously like this is predicated on the fact that you are imperialist yeah it's just a really strange way of like mudding the argument
and just being like, no, 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 we care about democracy, but we can't help if like spreading democracy aligns itself with like a crazy militaristic imperialist nation. Yeah. And and even if you <laughs> even if you accept Crystal and Kagan and the neoconservatives at face value and you believe and you actually believe that they believe what they're saying um, and almost all their writings they accept by default the idea that American foreign policy is waged in this way because of our ideals and wanting to see the world made in our image, like in the image of good and democracy and freedom. So while, you know, in some twisted, weird, backwards way, you could say that it's like a noble cause, you know, to them, um, even their stated intentions are deeply rooted in nationalism and American exceptionalism and like a superiority of their intellectualism over other societies in general. Right. And and that the world needs to thank us, not just, you know, we need to do these things in the future, but that the world needs to thank us for how good that they've had it because without us it would be much worse since World War II. So that's like a lot of the backbone of what they of what they claim to believe. And they've also hijacked the narrative so much that if you disagree with them, then you're an anti-American. And it's like, no, you guys are like the aberration of whatever America was yeah, and whatever the foreign policy was. It's in the grand tradition of, uh, of Truman, <laughs> of Reagan. Yeah, yeah. Because of yeah, Reagan, Reagan was, was... Reagan was a great American. He didn't tank the economy and destroy the middle class at all. It's interesting, though, and it, and it really all comes back to how you control the language and, um, you know, if you, if you just deny that you're neoconservative, I guess it's like, it's just fascinating that that's their strategy for so long. It's just to like detract from that as much as possible. And Jamie Kirchick was writing articles that long ago saying neoconservatism gets a bad rap because like people are kind of like hanging on to this word and using it as a pejorative when really it's not bad. And it's just kind of like this and that. Yeah. It's very interesting. And, 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 you know, look how good of a job that, you know, people have done to rewrite um, history on Reagan and make him seem heroic. Oh, my God. I yeah. mean, he was widely considered, a, he was a worldwide joke by the end of his presidency. You see Bush is already, even though people mock him, he's already, like, being deified slightly in terms of people even, like, paying attention to his paintings and stuff. Like, yeah. I, I looked at the front cover of the Wall Street Journal and it had, like... Bush's giant art exhibit as if he's just like a relevant figure now like look Bush unveiled his art exhibit last week and you're like I'm sorry what why <laughs> this person should be in prison and you guys are just like acting as if he's just another guy oh look it's cool that he's like channeling his stuff into art and yeah cool it's like they just forgot about everything that happened and I think that that we're gonna see the same exact thing Robbie when he dies yeah no, I on. totally agree and it's super disturbing yeah, and to fast forward this all to today, I mean, you know, the foreign policy initiative, the think tank that w is essentially like the think tank that rose out of the ashes of PNAC, um, on the surface, it doesn't seem like they have too much influence. But when you read about, you know, what things that they've heavily advocated for and what things are advocating for now, um, it gets a little scary to think that if the climate is just right in this country... You know, just like what you were saying, the, that war weariness editorial that Crystal wrote a few months ago, where he says that um, the rallying will be quick. And, and explain what the war weir weariness that he's like, he's basically opining about how sad he is that people are so war weary after Iraq was such a failure. Yeah. I mean, his yeah. whole thing is just like, yeah, you know, 
of unfortunately Americans are really war weary. It's like, oh, I wonder why, dude, because we're completely bankrupt Two illegal and immoral wars that are like one is a destabilized country. The other one still has troops there. They're dying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I wonder it's why not- we're war weary. And then he ends and he's it by saying, saying we need to turn it around. Yeah, we need to turn around. And it's and it's understandable why we're war weary, but it's not admirable was his actual quote, which is just goes back to his whole philosophy and his father's and all the other fucking sociopaths you know i don't even want to call them insane because that's almost complimenting them you know they're not they're not i mean they're sociopathic they're able to mock using machiavellian tactics manipulate the public discourse unemotionally knowing that they are doing it um and that the the idea that he puts forth in this editorial saying that the rallying will be quick like he knows from past experience that once if the atmosphere is ripe mm-hmm. if people are scared enough or if people are flooded with enough propaganda like in the news like constant everyday coverage of Crimea and the Ukraine and what are we going to do about Putin like every day day in day out if the elements are put in place just right and and you know it it will catch like wildfire like it'll right. be like an out of control blaze that all needs is a spark. And that's right. the scariest part to me is that it's like, once that happens, then it's almost like you can kind of believe in, in at least a little bit, not, and this doesn't give any excuse to Obama or Kerry or any of those other fucking assholes, but you can almost see how something like that, like, like a, a spark leading to like a fire that big would almost make the white house fall in line with it you know like it's not right. even the power doesn't necessarily have to come from the, the the white house first and then emanate outward it could come from outside in too and, I and think that's, that's what that that's what they ha- they're doing in all these other countries like cuba that's what they were doing in ukraine they were fostering and fomenting an environment that when the rallying happened the turnaround was quick in the sense that regime change happened very quickly like they all these states that are non-puppet states in terms of, and I'm not saying independent in the sense that they're like free and fair. I'm just saying that they're non-puppeted um, by U.S. hegemony. And, and these states are all, we, the, the CIA and the U.S. government and USAID or whatever the hell else is going on has fomented an environment that it has like very structured organizations on the ground that will be ready to rally and that will be able to like organize. Yeah. And I think, and that's where we, we don't have that. Like, that's why Occupy failed is because there's no like structure that's has a lot of funding. That's like ready to like move in and, and, and organize and like figure out how we're going to take advantage of a situation. It's kind of like when things happen like super organically, it's not as it's not as quick and efficient. But when you have people like Bill Crystal like setting up the structure, having these think tanks ready, having the policies written, having the prescriptions ready to go, having the the machine in place, yeah. I mean, when the rallying happens, like they're right there and they're gonna be the first ones there. And they're gonna be injecting it immediately. And that's what's gonna be so fucking crazy. And 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 we've seen it time and time again. It's like when they're ready to go, like they will take advantage of a crisis and use the fuck out of it and push it as far as they can do whatever they can i mean even the in the process set up yeah no the infrastructure totally set up and, and not to be overblown whatsoever but the fact that the infrastructure is already set up is what makes this actually so dangerous um the foreign policy initiative um 
which on the surface may just seem like this insignificant think tank is actually headed up by all of the same people who headed up and founded PNAC um, in their mission statement. This is their actual mission statement. And it opens up in the first couple sentences saying the United States and its democratic allies face many foreign policy challenges. They come from rising and resurgent powers, including China and Russia. They come from other autocracies that violate the rights of their citizens. They come from Al-Qaeda and its affiliates who continue to plot attacks against the United States and our allies. The Foreign Policy Initiative was founded in 2009 by Robert Kagan, Bill Kristol, and Dan Senor. And if nobody remembers who Dan Senor is, he is actually the spokesperson for Paul Bremer, who was the coalition provisional authority in Iraq, essentially the Iraqi dictator before they handed off power to the U.S. puppet government. Um, so these three guys started the foreign policy initiative. When they speak about the fall of the Soviet Union, you can see this little, I don't know, this little glint in their eye and this, this feeling of nostalgia wash over them where they, they truly believe that during our cold war with the Soviet Union, um, that the world was a more stable place because things were in this almost like a yin and a yang, like a balance of some kind. All in the mistaken view that now that the Soviet Union was gone, we would not need as large a force. And it turns out that in some respects, because the Soviet Union disappeared, uh, we need a larger force. Uh, ironically than we did during the Cold War because the world has descended into some element of chaos since the end of the bipolar world. I don't look back, uh, you know, nostalgically on the Cold War, but there's no question that the disappearance of the Soviet Union made possible Saddam Hussein's invasion uh, of Kuwait in 1990, and, and we have had to respond to this, to this growing chaos uh, ever since does intervene, that they might even send in troops as they did in Georgia. Well, they certainly have intervened in all kinds of ways in Ukraine in the last few months even more and so. years, but they could do even more so. Look, it's nice for President Obama to say it's not a Cold War chessboard. I don't know why he says that with some disdain. That was not an ignoble thing for us to play on that chessboard for 45 years. We ended up winning that Cold War. Um, and I do think Putin thinks he's playing chess. He thinks he's playing even a rougher game than chess, and we have to be able to match it. We could say, I mean, they're all honored to the people of Ukraine for beginning this process, but if we are not as we and the Europeans cannot make ourselves as strong a force uh, for democracy and the rule of law in Ukraine as Putin is for the opposite, then things may not go well. If you think about it, us facing off with Russia again, even if it's not exactly like the old Cold War, but it's just a similar thing where they're a giant world superpower. And, you know, we have this giant enemy again instead of the war on terror, because I think the war on terror to a certain point will outlive its usefulness and as far as being a, a rallying cry for people to get you know involved like personally invested in it or to even care so something like russia actually creates this opportunity where you have a country that that has nuclear weapons and most people who are our age have this sort of like memory of their childhood when we were like pitted against russia and where they were our main enemy it's it's just the perfect climate right now and this is two months i think after all the shit went down with crimea and it's still going they're still trying to hitlerize putin they're still trying to essentially ratchet up the tension between russia and the united states and it's mostly just the mainstream media with the help of all these foreign policy think tanks and the mainstream media is still heavily covering this i mean the more putin 
actually makes moves into Ukraine, um, the more they're going to be continuing to cover it. I mean, the media likes to cover the, a continuing story and milk it as much as they can. But in reality, it's only a handful of these Washington, D.C. reporters who are taking this hardline, more militaristic approach with this conflict in the Ukraine. Um, and pretty much all of them happen to be either associated with or directly working for the foreign policy initiative. Um, specifically, Robert Zarate, um, Hannah Thorburn, Jamie Kerchick, uh, Dan Senor is also going out into the media and talking about this. So is Bill Crystal, And I'm going to play you a, a selection of essentially the talking points that they're trying to use during this climate, this perfect climate for them, uh, all about how we need to beef up uh, NATO presence in surrounding countries in Ukraine and, and essentially show Russia we mean business and things like that. And I'm not going to identify each one specifically just to illustrate how similar their talking points are and how they're just echoing each other and parodying the same talking points from this foreign policy initiative think tank. Many here in Washington say that show of U.S. support should translate into military backing for Ukraine. Not boots on the ground, but uh, um, troop deployments in neighboring NATO states, for example, in Poland, um, in Hungary. Um, just a way to sort of show the Russians that we mean business. It does border for NATO countries. Missile defense capabilities in former Warsaw Pact countries that are part of NATO provide resources to former military resources, ground forces uh, movements for former Warsaw Pact countries that are part of NATO. Expand the, the sanctions. The Magnitsky Act has hundreds Dan, of Russians not, we can be sanctioning. The administration Dan, is sanctioning I, a handful I'm not of saying them. that you are wrong. And so, so, Dan, what does any American president do to stop Vladimir Putin if he moves east? Well, moves, moves west. What we, well, west. We, should, we should beef up the security resources in the NATO countries that are former Warsaw Pact countries. We should re, you know, renegotiate and, and back up the missile and defense capabilities. We have no way of knowing whether or not we'll slow Putin down. But one thing we will do is we'll send a message to the world. And the Iranians and the North Koreans mm -hmm. and the Syrians, and you can keep going down the list, who are watching how we respond to this. Does America's word matter? to whether or not, you know, if Putin wants to go after parts of Eastern Estonia next, would NATO actually come to its defense? And I think sending those troops over there, and they're very small amounts of troops, really just 150 sort of a company sent to Poland and a reasonably small amount to Estonia as well for these exercises. It's just a way of saying... Stand by that? You think we should have American boots on the ground in Ukraine? I'm not sure we should. I am sure that the president of the United States should not have ruled it out. And indeed, what happens if Putin actually invades Ukraine? Are we really going to stick to the position that it's inconceivable that we send troops? We stuck to that position in Syria. Assad seems to have used chemical weapons once again. Let's not talk about ground troops. How about maybe a little air power or air support or providing weapons to the Ukrainians? Would that be such a bridge too far for President Obama to go? So I think, it's, I think the people Nick saw in Ukraine are right to be disappointed in us. And I say that with great regret as an American, because I don't think we have an American president who is standing up to Putin in the way that Reagan did in that, after reading that 1983 memo and before reading it, too, to the Soviet Union. 
Uh, Bill Crystal, a little hard to write off the Russian leader, isn't it? I mean, it's, sometimes it's not really your choice what happens in foreign policy. <laughs> no, exactly. I'm thrilled if the White House is studying what Harry Truman did in 1947, 1948, which is what the article suggests. But what Harry Truman did in 1947 and 48 is help anti-communists in Greece and Turkey, the Berlin airlift, the tough sense of sending tons of troops back to Europe to guarantee Europe's uh, ability, free Europe, Western Europe's ability to defend itself against the Soviet Union, and eventually a huge defense buildup. That was the Cold War. If President Obama goes in that direction, uh, more power to him. But I don't, I don't think he will. What, what else? How best could the U.S., the West in general, and uh, the government in Kiev handle it? Sure. I, you know, on the Russian side, because President Obama has said that there is absolutely no military option, including not just the use of force, but, for example, providing military advisors to the Ukrainian government. Uh, the Russians know that the worst that they'll, they'll have to face is ostracization and really hard-hitting sanctions. It, it already is a, a de facto conflict between Russia and NATO. It's just that we're not acting like it is. But yes, if, if that were to happen and if, if Russia were to set its sights on the Baltic states, uh, this would call a, into uh, action um, Article 5 of, of the, the NATO treaty. And in the United States and other European members would have to take very seriously the question of how, did, how would they collectively defend our NATO allies in the Baltics. Or, well, you know, what's, what's, what's problematic and in retrospect tragic is that the president was so quick to say that there is absolutely no military option in Ukraine. We could have done lower level things such as sending advisors, um, providing more timely intelligence. In fact, uh now foreign policy initiatives, Jamie Kerchik has just returned from Ukraine where he spoke with the country's interior minister. And Jamie joins us now with his take on the situation in, in Kiev. What did you find when you were in Ukraine? It seems that the United States and the West more generally has just sort of accepted this as a de facto um, that th this has just gone away. Crimea is forever Russia's and why we oppose. There is a force of at least 40,000 camped out on Ukraine's border. Russian troops. Russian troops. There, there have been uh, these spies and saboteurs or spetsnazd um, that have infiltrated into eastern Ukraine, similar to the tactic that we saw in Crimea. That is the kind of information that would be invaluable to the Ukrainians as they try to mount this counteroffensive, and that is the view of some, such as General Breedlove, the NATO Supreme Allied Commander. And the same fear of sharing intelligence information with Ukraine, uh, the same reason, I think, is the, the fear of the U.S. providing weapons to Ukraine, even defensive weapons. Anything special expected to emerge from Vice President Biden's visit there? He's going this weekend? Uh, I'm not going on that visit, but I know that Vice President Biden going there is very, at least it's very symbolically significant. It's a way of saying that the West stands with Ukraine at this point. And you're seeing it with these new assets being deployed that Jim Shooter talked about and potentially these new sanctions. It's a way of sort of trying to create the deterrence with Russia while also giving them an exit ramp. Eli Lake uh, reporting for us. Uh, thanks very much. Thank you. So things didn't have to be this way, and I think we need to stop making excuses for this regime in Moscow. They are the problem. People who don't understand that think tanks actually do shape a lot of what goes on in D.C. just simply doesn't know how D.C. works, which is, you know, these policy prescriptions and recommendations written by all these, like, ex-politicians and all these advisors who hang around. I mean, Karl Rove is still hanging around influencing a lot of stuff. So these people never left the administration per se, Um in fact, yeah. they probably have more influence now because yeah. because they just can be kind of off the record, um, you know, just just uh, influence all influencing all these things and sending out their minions to kind of promote their or parrot their talking points on the mainstream media. And when yeah. this happened two months ago, 
Um, you know, of course, everyone already knew that the mainstream media was was revving up another Cold War and kind of resurrecting this narrative. Um, but we didn't really know who the players were and we didn't really know what think tanks were like pushing it. We didn't really know that much beyond just the surface level. Like, yeah, this is really crazy that the media and political establishment are doing this. But this event actually gave us a really good insight because it happened to me. Um, so it kind of drove us to look at who the players are behind the game. Exactly. And it turns out that who is driving it on the surface, it doesn't seem like it's the U S government or the white house. Um, their official statements don't necessarily line up with sort of the mainstream media fervor over Putin and Russia. However, only very recently did we realize that a state-funded U.S. propaganda outlet, Radio Free Europe, was actually way ahead of the game on this and has been reporting stories like this and driving this kind of agitprop for years. And Foreign Policy Initiative had also been driving it and was ready to go with all the stuff um, sort of right when the climate was right. Yeah. Let, let's talk about who who's really out there shaping this narrative. Well, yeah. I mean, it all goes back to that tweet sent sent by the Foreign Policy Initiative's Twitter account. You know, these people have Twitter accounts now. PNAC uh, was, was <laughs> during an era when they didn't have Twitter yet. So now they're tweeting things. And uh, this time they happen to tweet in 20 minutes, watch RT, something big is about to happen or something. I'm not quoting it exactly, but they, they had, they seem to have foreknowledge of that something was going to happen on Russia today that day. And that something happened to be Liz Wall's resignation. And then after the team up between her and, and Jamie Kerchick, where they took the freedom selfie, he got the first exclusive interview with her. You know, she started echoing his talking points after all that shit happened. We didn't realize until that that information about the Twitter thing uh, came out that that there was like direct foreknowledge by someone at the Foreign Policy Initiative, and that someone turned out to be Jamie Kerchick. He he's most well known for his supposed protest on Russia Today, where he you know supposedly protested the gay law when he was supposed to come on to talk about how he thought that Chelsea Manning should be executed for leaking things to WikiLeaks, which is just really bizarre, you know, that he got hailed as this hero when the reason he was asked on is because he has this extremely harsh view on Chelsea Manning. You know, being here on a Kremlin-funded propaganda network, I'm going to wear my uh, gay pride suspenders and I'm going to speak out. What about Bradley Manning first? I, you know, I don't, I'm not really interested in talking about Bradley uh -huh. Manning. I'm interested in talking about the horrific environment of homophobia in Russia right now. Done. I only go on that station to fuck with the Russians, so. Ironically, uh, Liz, when she got demoted off the desk for like seven months because of her behavior in the office, it was really interesting because she ended up going and covering the Chelsea Manning trial like on assignment. Yeah. And so it's amazing that exactly. someone can spend months and months intimately involved with this trial and then choose to link up with this public stuntman who openly advocate, I mean, probably the harshest thing that I've even ever seen from someone around our age yeah. advocating for the punishment of Chelsea. So super bizarre um, choice there. And the strangest thing about him, which, which is just truly, truly bizarre. And I mean, this is not something common among like people who are in the media spreading propaganda, but it happens to be the case in Jamie Kerchick's case, which is that he actually worked for a U.S government funded <laughs> um, pro-US pro uh, propaganda outlet called Radio Free Europe. 
it's just so strange because all of, of all the reporting he did for Radio Free Europe, it mirrors exactly the type of reporting he's done off of Radio Free Europe when he supposedly, you know, retired from being a U.S. government um, mouthpiece. He's going out there and he seems to have this extreme vendetta against Russia today, which kind of goes along the lines of a lot of the reporting he did for Radio Free Europe. This is this is what he said about Russia today. Quote, RT is a ridiculous sham of an organization. Um, RT, Russia shouldn't be boycotted. It should be trolled. Boycotting them gives them a sense of wounded pride and artificial importance. Trolling. They don't know what to do with it. Oh, well, and then that he said, explains what his, his actions. I mean, he is a troll. Yeah. And then this is a, an, another interesting thing he says, especially being a former U.S. government um, propagandist. He says, quote, anyone who works for... Russia today in a free country like the United States or Britain should be ashamed of themselves. I think it's absolutely disgusting and reprehensible that anyone who lives in a free country would take the blood money from Vladimir Putin or the Ayatollahs. And those people who do should be named and they should be shamed repeatedly. And they should be, and they should be every day they go into work, they should be made to, be, to, 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 to feel guilty by their colleagues in the, in the journalistic community because they're not journalists, they're, they're, they're propagandists and they're, they're handmaidens to uh, authoritarianism. Wow. And the fact that he even had the audacity to continue to call me a propagandist or calls people at RT a propagandist when he is a propagandist. It's like, what? Yeah. And other people aren't falling for it. I mean, we're not the only ones who have who have thought, wow, this is really strangely hypocritical that he's claiming, you know, putting himself out there as this face for gay rights um, um, and like, you know, uh, protesting against Russia. This is from Wikipedia. Mm. It says, at first glance, this seems to be a spontaneous display of protest against Russia's laws. However, looking into Kerchik, we discover that his stunt was covering something sinister and hypocritical. His equally passionate article calling for Bradley Manning's execution. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's just, it's just really fascinating. When you go back and look at his Radio Free Europe reporting um he had his own column actually uh, on radio free europe called at large uh and it has like a little picture of him with like a logo and stuff um he did an actual report funded by u.s taxpayers to keep this in mind that this is a u.s government funded propaganda outlet so tax our taxes are paying for this um our taxes are paying for him to do a report on the psychology of 9-11 truthers. Can you tell us now, you know, this is the 10th anniversary of 9-11. Would you say that 9-11 conspiracy theories are more or less prevalent than they were in the initial aftermath of the attacks? Um, it's an interesting question. 9-11 conspiracy theories didn't really peak, I would say, until late 2003 and early 2004. Is there is there something that connects all conspiracy theories? And you have ones on the right, you have ones on the left. Is there is there a thread ideologically or or psychologically that you would say connects conspiracy theorists, even though they might have different politics? Yes, uh, they share the same basic structure, uh, which is that there is some central uh, overarching puppet master, and in that conspiracy theory, the Jews were the evildoers, and they were creating wars and depressions and revolutions all over the world. Is there an element of truth in any of these conspiracy theories? I mean, let's take the 9-11 conspiracy theory. Is there anything that, that these people say that is in some small sense accurate? 
Um, many things they say are, are accurate. You know, if you interview conspiracy theorists, they will often point you to a lot of highly accurate information. Uh, and he interviewed that guy who wrote a book called Among the Truthers. And it's just this like sort of like psychological breakdown on like why these people are so crazy and, ha- and how they're dangerous to society. The 9-11 Truth Movement, which is a movement that's calling for a new investigation. I was a member of it, a uh, pretty prominent member. Um, and, and also keep in mind, fast forwarding to today, um, and of course I've evolved out of that movement. I've, you know, I, I still hold beliefs that we were lied to, et cetera, but keep in mind, fast forwarding to today that James Kerchick was the first person to go out and, um, smear me as a quote, truther lunatic, all of the MSM and also the daily beast. So he called what you did a Russian false flag, Yeah, an act of pseudo dissidents, a Russian false flag. It was published also uh, that excerpt on the FPI foreign policy initiatives, Facebook page. Yeah. Very interesting. If you search for Abby Martin on the foreign policy initiative, uh, website, you find, uh, it's six times mentioned in their daily briefs. Almost all all writings from Kirchner. And it's all very unfavorable. Um, Of course, course. contrasted with Liz Wall, very, you know, praising her as a pro-American anti-propagandist who couldn't stand to work at Putin's propaganda network anymore. So it was very, very interesting to see that this this same guy has been kind of following the damage of 9-11 truth back that long ago um, Mm -hmm. and seized on this opportunity to smear me immediately. so it's just interesting. It's the same person. <laughs> yeah, it is really interesting. And and he connects to a lot of other DC insiders. Um, when he was reporting for Radio Free Europe, uh, he was sort of like the surrogate expert for them on Eastern European political turmoil. So from the Truth Dig article uh, by Max Blumenthal and Raina Kalik, quote, located in an office in Washington, D.C.'s DuPont Circle, Foreign policy initiative exists at the physical heart of the neoconservative movement. Its office is, in fact, the same place listed as the home of the Emergency Committee for Israel, a Likud-oriented public relations group that wields Israel as a political wedge issue, routinely attacking Obama for being insufficiently supportive of Netanyahu's policies and baselessly trashing Occupy Wall Street as a haven for anti-Semites. Among the Emergency Committee for Israel's advisors is Michael Goldfarb, the 33-year-old founder of the Washington Free Beacon, a neoconservative online journal that turns out a relentlessly pro-Israel narrative advocating for war in Iran. At the same time, Goldfarb has worked as a lobbyist for DC-based Orion Strategies, and it was through that lobbying firm that he cultivated Kerchik and a cadre of neoconservative writers to generate commentary promoting the aims of the Republic of Georgia a foreign client under the control at the time of the U.S.-oriented government. This is an interesting and important component to this, because if you want to rewind back to 2008, when the Ossetia conflict was happening with Georgia and between Georgia and Russia, the U.S. government did not do jack shit about it. 2008 was pretty much the end of the George W. Bush presidency, And by that time, I don't think he had the political cachet and not only Bush, but the neoconservative as a a whole. Um, Project for a New American Century had already been disbanded. They were just starting the framework for the foreign policy initiative back then. So I think that at that time, 
you know, ideally these neoconservatives would have wanted wanted to drum up um, anti-Russian sentiment back in 2008, but they didn't really have their ducks in a row yet. They were kind of reorganizing. And I think that this guy, Michael Goldfarb, sort of filled that void during that time. And of course, you know, he got um, an expert on Eastern European politics, Jamie Kerchik, um, to help him in those efforts to sort of drum up anti-Russian sentiment in the United States. And this is sort of when, where part of the connection comes in between um, people like Michael Goldfarb of the Washington Free Beacon working for the, essentially the Georgian government, which was essentially a U.S. puppet government at the time, and people like Eli Lake and Rosie Gray and Jamie Kerchik. The Truthig article goes on to say, with the direct coaching and promotion from neoconservatives in Washington, Saakashvili adopted a confrontational stance towards Putin. Goldfarb wined and dined his neoconservative pals on the Georgian government's dime. As a result, a steady stream of columns and reports hyping up the Russian menace appeared in targeted media outlets. Quote, Orion seeks to create a media echo chamber on Georgia and Russia, Russia says journalist Ken Silverstein in 2011. Orion is friendly to and works with government officials and politicians who its reporter friends regularly cite. Orion also works very close, closely with experts and organizations cited by these reporters, like the Foreign Policy Initiative. According to foreign agents' registration documents filed by Orion with the Department of Justice, Goldfarb fed Georgian PR to Eli Lake, now a national security correspondent at the Daily Beast, Matthew Cantonetti, the weekly standard editor from whom Goldfarb would hire to edit the Free Beacon, Jen Rubin, currently a Washington Post columnist who went on to take an ECI-sponsored trip to Israel, and Rosie Gray, the BuzzFeed reporter who produced the re recent expose on Russia Today. Ben Smith, who hired Gray to work at BuzzFeed and who worked alongside Lake at the neoconservative New York Sun, was also named as a frequent Orion contact on Georgia. BuzzFeed foreign editor, Miriam Elder moderated a State Department-sponsored town hall meeting featuring Secretary of State John Kerry on March 18th. And remember that Miriam Elder is the same lady who was together on the Lawrence O'Donnell show with Jamie Kerchik, essentially calling you a lunatic and saying that what you did was an act of Russian pseudo-dissonance. Yeah, I think this is a form of really managed or controlled dissent, sort of the official or puppet opposition. And these are, you know, parties and politicians who are paid and sponsored by the Kremlin. That's what Abby Martin is. She, this woman, we need to be clear, is an out-and-out -out lunatic. She's a conspiracy theorist. She's a 9-11 truther. So these are just, this is just an example and insight onto how a lot of these early 30s reporters are essentially doing the bidding of neoconservative think tanks and U.S. puppet government PR firms. And not surprisingly, a lot of this Georgian PR firm fed, um, just like always seemingly, um, fed Eli Lake sources, um, either anonymous or non-anonymous, to be essentially base a series of reports demonizing the Putin regime. Specifically, though, this is the interesting part, is that going along the lines of how Jamie Kerchik, David Frum, Richard Pearl, and all these other neoconservatives like to mention as often as they can that Russia does false flag terrorist attacks, um, one of the main stories that um, Eli Lake wrote that were essentially arranged by Orion Strategies, this Georgian PR forum. He wrote a story that talked about a bombing near the U.S. Embassy. In an interview with Lake, um, he had a quote that the bombings were ordered at the most senior levels of the Russian government. So essentially what Eli Lake is reporting here is that the Russian government staged a false flag attack on a U.S. Embassy. 
And to be absolutely clear with our listeners, we aren't basing the connection between Eli Lake and former government propagandists and neoconservative think tanks in Washington, D.C. off of the Truth Dig article alone. Um, we have uh, video footage of him hosting a talk that the Foreign Policy Initiative put on titled Time to Attack Iran? Question mark Is described as a case for attacking Iran. I think what Matt's piece is more is laying out the conditions under which the United, he would, the United States should attack Iran. Is that correct? Anyway. Um. He also was like the featured guest at a Foundation of, for Defense of Democracies talk about the Al-Qaeda conference call, which we'll talk about a little bit later. What is surprising, though, is how little people can be writing this kind of material, but have their message reverberated throughout the establishment. You have like Dave Weigel from Slate, like just like echoing shit without even like following up at all or like questioning anything. Um, and there's a lot of like Gawker and just like, it shows you how bad journalism is back to the beheading thing that you went through and kind of seen just how people just parrot stuff. Of course. Um, it's Daily a game of Mail. telephone. Um, yeah. It is a game of tell. It is a game of telephone, but, but it shows you that you don't need that many people. No, you don't. Doing this. You don't. I mean, just a few. Um, Jamie Kerchick wrote an article also for Radio Free Europe called, quote, how WikiLeaks makes confrontation with Iran more likely. Uh, <laughs> he wrote a series of stories in 2010 about the abysmal state of gay rights in Serbia and Belgrade. Um, he had a, an article for them. And mind you, this is U.S. government funded uh, state propaganda. Right. Um, the article was called In Serbia, Gay Rights Activists Prepare for the Worst. Um, and just not even just him, but, you know, he wrote a series of articles about this. But for years, um, Radio Free Europe has been writing tons of articles on uh, the Russian gay law. In Russia, a protest against lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender rights took place in the city of Kostroma. The demonstration by members of a pro-Kremlin group happened on the same day that a gay pride parade was supposed to take place in the city. The gay pride march was unexpectedly called off by government officials. That's the video roundup from Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. They, they wrote a bunch of articles during the Sochi Olympics about how corrupt the Olympics were. Um, they wrote a bunch of articles about Pussy Riot. Uh, they wrote a bunch of articles trying to portray Putin as like a Hitler-like figure. Um, it's just really fascinating to me that this is actually a completely, almost totally unheard of organization. I mean, I had no idea they existed before this. Um, that's being funded by our tax money. That's that's writing all this, um, this shit out there. <laughs> Yeah. Basically, agitprop. Yeah, and guess I mean, whether what? or not some of it's true or not, I mean, a lot of the stuff you know is based on truth, but it's like it's it's designed well, it's picking to picking and choosing. I mean, yeah, <laughs> of course, yeah. I mean, you're talking about one of political prisoners, you know, pussy right, as sad as their case is, and as unjust as what they went through was. It's like compared to the 25 percent of the world's prisoners we have here, yeah. Like, like tens of thousands of people in jail for nonviolent drug crimes. I mean, it's outrageous. We have the biggest prison industrial complex in the world. Yeah. So, I mean, don't talk to me about political prisoners in other countries. I mean, the solitary confinement is used very liberally here. That is torture according to the UN. So I just, you have to understand that when these talking points are pushed out there by especially think tanks like this, it's for a very specific reason. It's They're called designed. agitation propaganda. 
Yeah, it's designed to redirect our focus away from complaining about problems here at home to an easy scapegoat like Russia. I mean, and Russia is an easy scapegoat. You know, we've, yeah. we were in a cold war with them for so long. It's almost like borderline reflexive the way that we could just like easily just go back into that mindset. Well, it's also really foreign. As a society. There was this poll done that polled Americans about Ukraine. Um, I don't know if you saw this, but it was actually really scary. Um, because the more people didn't have any idea where Ukraine was, the more they wanted the U.S. to invade or like militarily get involved. And people even thought Ukraine was like in the U.S. and in the Jesus ocean. Christ. And so it was really right. interesting to think of like people who don't know where it is are are that much more apt to like support military intervention, which shows you that maybe if they knew that like Ukraine was right on the border of Russia, you know, maybe they would think like, oh, wait. Yeah, that maybe this isn't a good idea. It's just like very interesting, just how stupid people are, and how like they're just like supporting like militarily invading other countries or intervening without even knowing anything about it, without even knowing where it is. They think it's like where fucking Fiji is. Yeah, and they know that people are ignorant enough to just like lap it up. I mean, it's not that hard to get a society to rally behind a war if the climate is just right. And that's that's the scary part. If that's part. all you're hearing about on the news yeah. every day, that's all you think is going on. Yeah. There's no other point of reference or frame of reference to people. Yeah, and this is the this is where things get tricky. He started immediately writing articles for all these different, you know, slightly smaller um media outlets like tablet magazine um harats uh the weekly standard he's not just a fellow at the foreign policy initiative um and and he's also done a lot of media appearances on behalf of the foreign policy initiative um but he's also the fellow of this other uh think tank that's equally as um hawkish and neoconservative called the foundation for defense of democracies and the director is is the former cia director james woolsey wow yeah and it's just fucking insane. Like wow. what, that that's and, and this just goes to show that people who are outside of government are still mm -hmm. trying to form policy or trying to at least influence it from the outside. Yeah, Hayden and when it is on the TV all the time talking about the NSA. And when it comes down to it, you know, does it matter more that this is the White House who initiated it or does it matter that who is the one who formulated the policy right, and exactly. the one who floated it out there and got it to stick? Like to me, that's the more interesting part of it. And that, that is the shadow government. If we want to talk about the shadow government, that's it. Yeah. I, and I think, and it's not, and it's not in the shadows. It's completely right. out, hiding. It's in just extremely sight. like not talked about. It's just very minimized in public discourse. Everyone's focused on the elected representatives, not even, yeah. but yeah. when they are, they, they're focused on Congress. And he's also appeared in, and you know, you would think a lot of those names I mentioned are conservative, but he's also appeared a lot on the daily beast, which, you know, a lot of their articles seem really liberal. And that also hosts Eli Lake. Yeah. Oh, Eli Lake. And they also have a lot of people from the foundation for defense of democracies writing there too. I see their accolades sometimes listed there. Daily beast almost seems like a shell <laughs> network. Really strange that it could host like two people who are like the forefront of this well, new cold war yeah they'd probably argue it's like for diversity's sake or something so they could have different opinions but i mean it is just really interesting that a lot of this propaganda is planted you know at, at first in those type of outlets like the al-qaeda conference call scoop right. which ended up being fake was yeah it was in the daily beast uh first um so jamie kerchick wrote wrote an article about how david miranda um, was involved in helping 
um, smuggle secret documents. And in this giant article, um, he also just like tries to bash Jeremy Scahill, claiming that he, um, you know, is borderline treasonous for his beliefs. And he doesn't think that there's, um, you know, that he think that he's like trying to portray Jeremy Scahill as this like apologist for Anwar al and stuff. And the article is titled Treason Chic. Um, and then um, he's he's also tried to blatantly downplay the war on investigative journalism and whistleblowing. Um, he's tried to say that only one government employee has received jail time under the Obama administration um, for revealing classified information, which is blatantly untrue. I mean, he doesn't include Chelsea Manning and a whole slew of other people like John Karaku. The way that he le- links into Eli Lake is not just for that ridiculous uh, picture that they took together. You know which picture I'm talking about? Yeah, it's a picture of... Um, so after everyone kind of mocked the Truth Dig article where Max Blumenthal and Rania Kalik were saying that, st- that Cold War hungry neocons stage managed Liz Wall's res- resignation, which they did. Um, stage manage-, manage is different than conspiring to make it happen. I mean, we've already made it clear that this was a mutually beneficial relationship where Liz Wall was simply a useful idiot. I don't think that she knew really what Jamie Kirchhoff was all about or what the FPI was all about, which essentially proves her apolitical nature even more. Um, But she knew that she would get huge attention. She knew that she can link up with Kerchick and have him promote her and manage her resignation and and, and which he did very successfully. Um, But in response to this claim from truth dig and, and pretty much laid it all out, totally um, explosive expose pointing to the connections that all these reporters have. But once they did that, Eli Lake, Rosie Gray and James Kerchick um, pretty much laughed it off. They, they didn't really have any response. They just kept saying how ridiculous that, that, that there's this conspiracy theory that they conspired Liz to resign and, and did the whole thing. And it was just so funny. And then like they celebrated a, a you know, there's a cadre of New York conservatives who are celebrating her resignation. And then like right after they were all mocking this article, like that night, they posted a photo from Rosie Gray's Twitter account saying, sorry, not sorry. And it was her Eli Lake, which is her boyfriend, James Kerchick and Liz Wall all sitting there drinking wine while Eli Lake is wearing like a begging, uh, terror. He's a terrorist. The former Israeli prime minister, um, who's responsible for horrible atrocities that even Reagan said was a war criminal, um, proudly boasting this picture of this guy on his shirt. Um, just really, really disgraceful display. And, you know, Max Blumenthal just shot back and said, really, you're not celebrating together. <laughs> like, what are you guys doing then? It is it's really bizarre. bizarre. Yeah. One of the, one of the biggest quote unquote scoops that Eli Lake, um, brought forth was that supposed Al Qaeda conference call. And, He's actually written multiple stories that were designed to counter damage done by the Snowden NSA leaks. Not just the Al-Qaeda conference call one, which was sort of, it was, it was kind of like, almost like, look, like the NSA is actually like intercepting, you know, all these Al-Qaeda leaders that want, that are talking to each other at once and conspiring to do new terrorist attacks, um, which the whole story uh, if you really read his whole expose and you and you listen to him talk about it, it just sounds completely fantastical. It sounds totally made up, and it's all based on anonymous government sources. 
The Daily Beast reporters, Ellie Lake and Josh Rogan, have uncovered the reason behind the terror alerts that prompted mass embassy closures across the Middle East. According to them, U.S. officials intercepted a conference call between Al-Qaeda's senior leaders and representatives of several affiliates in the region. And again, when you're using the term conference call, you're not literally meaning a conference call. Right. I mean, again, uh, you know, we, 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 we're not saying whether it was a phone call or a video or an Internet or voice or data or whatever. Uh, the, the bottom line here is that, uh, you know, this uh, consider it sort of like a, a virtual meeting space. There, there have been some, uh, you know, reporters, frankly, I've seen, you know, raise the question, well, is it possible some of your sources were using you either to justify uh, the NSA uh, coverage of the NSA program it's not really connected, so I think uh, some people uh, maybe were conflating those two issues where there really isn't uh, a really strong connection. The Foundation for the Defense of Democracies hosts this 90-minute discussion that includes a look at the relationship between the Muslim Brotherhood and Al-Qaeda. You know, I'm an Al-Zawi here. He had his IT guy come in and said, explain to me how I, uh, what my handle is and how I do this. Was it really kind of sophisticated? I'm an Al-Zawi here. IT guy is his son-in-law, a guy by the name of Mugrebi, who, uh, that's his alias. And uh, he's in charge of a kind of technical committee in Al-Qaeda that is, you know, they have engineers, they have, they have their own encryption software, they have uh, created a proprietary technology that allows them to have these kinds of uh, remote conferences that allow for video <coughs> and chatting. It's pretty amazing stuff. And it's advanced. They also have an intranet through other <laughs> sites. They have not only, they've, they've developed some pretty impressive technology, what I've heard from my sources. Yeah, I would read. Eli, Eli uh, uh, mentioned he's got a new piece up just just yeah. now, concurrent with this uh, panel. And I think that uh, if I would go read that to understand better situation of what the technology actually involves, how this evolved. I mean, sort of when when Eli and Josh first reported this as a conference call, people were saying, "Well, it can't be a conference call because they're thinking in terms of normal American business conference calls." And the, you know, the Obama administration really did order the closure of all those embassies and stuff like around that same time. But what he did was he sort of added the other side to that story. You know, all these people were wondering, oh, was it because of terrorism? Was it because of terrorism they closed these embassies? Was it because of terrorism? And apparently it was because of like some very, yeah, you know, not as salacious sounding kind of like Yemeni terrorist threat or something. But what Eli Lake did is he filled in the whole, like f- the other 50% of the missing part of that story based on anonymous government sources explaining in detail how Zawahiri and like the Al-Qaeda representatives from like every country that has an Al-Qaeda presence in it were all in this giant online like Skype conference call, basically giving out orders for like all the new attacks they're going to do. And when we say Legion of Doom, that's not, we're not pulling out of our asses. The, the, he actually said that this is what that guy likened it to, that it was like a Legion of Doom, which is a cartoon of like super villains. Well, it's DC Comics. Yeah, what that means is that you I mean, know, it's amazing that that his inside government source is like a DC Comics fan who's like spreading <laughs> anti or like pro US government propaganda. But it's like, how could Eli Lake like write that in it with a serious face? You think yeah. that he would admit that part and be like, oh, okay, like yeah, it's like the Legion of Doom? But he actually like wrote it seriously, quoting this guy saying like, no, this is what it is. Yeah, and what's what's what, just embarrassing. Yeah. And what's missing from that part of the story, you know, on the surface, it's like, oh, okay, he just wrote this thing to like hype up Al-Qaeda again for the government, you know, whatever. You know, that's probably what most of his reporting is anyways on terrorism. Whenever he reports on terrorism, it's probably in that vein. Um, But if you look at it in the context of what other news stories were going at the time, the Edward Snowden NSA scandal had just broken like two months before. 
So it's like, what is this story in effect doing to the American psyche after you've just heard that the government is spying on everyone supposedly to protect us from terrorism? And then all of a sudden it, it makes people better or more okay with spying. Yeah. Cause it's like, Oh my God, they had this giant conference call. Like, well, fuck yeah, we should still be spying. Like that's fucking crazy, dude. Like let's kill those fucking terrorists. Like, of course we should be spying on them. So yeah, it is kind of an interesting counter antidote like story to sort of try to minimize the damage from that gets these you know sources from anonymous government officials and like runs with them and oh, then yeah. everyone publishes them because they're like an exclusive source and from that's, the inside and that's how almost all of like the big time mainstream reporting is done like bob woodward i mean all of these people have made entire careers off of that kind of reporting he's just another new new guy who's doing that except for some reason he's getting all like the pro-government sources yeah oh, <laughs> or like the oh, sources oh, that oh, just make why. the government yeah. look really good yeah but Eight out of the 14 stories that Eli Lake has written in the last month and a half for the Daily Beast have been about Russia and the Ukraine, like constantly. And then half of the stories are just relying on all these anonymous government sources. Like one of his stories recently got repeated all over the place. I saw it posted on multiple different places that was all about how John Brennan, the CIA director, is going to um, Ukraine to like share intelligence about where Russia's troops are. Um, finally, you know, like after they caved to pressure um, because so many people were upset that the U.S. government wasn't helping out the Ukrainian government, you know, and all this shit. And it was like bouncing off of sort of a, a story that Jamie Kirchick wrote about a week earlier saying, you know, why isn't the U.S. government helping Ukraine? You know, they're just leaving them out there in the lurch kind of a thing. Like they're not sharing this intelligence information with them. Like they should be. Their stories just work perfectly with each other. They just sort of like echo the same talking points in, in different ways. Lake did a profile of James Clapper. Kevin Gostola did a really good write-up about his whole expose on James Clapper. And it was this extremely sympathetic portrayal of James Clapper where he just makes them seem like really like sad and like he's been unfairly portrayed. Kevin Gostola goes back into Eli Lake's past and finds out that he was actually spreading Iraq war propaganda during the, the peak of the Iraq war propaganda wave back in like 2003, which is not, I guess that's not that surprising. And he's also responsible for publishing the, um, the propaganda that bin Laden used his wife as a human shield. He also denies being a neoconservative, pretty much just like Jamie Kirchick. Interestingly, he posted on April 1st, April Fool's Day, uh, Eli Lake tweeted, I am not and have never been a neoconservative. Anyways, uh, Eli Lake has also tried to downplay the influence that neoconservatives still have in D.C., for taking my call. Mr. Lake, I'm going to put you on the spot. Now, we just had a Washington Post article that came out that C-SPAN's completely ignored that talked about how the other neocon warmongers, uh, Fred and Kimberly Kagan, were basically advising General Betrayus as well. Why aren't you, we talking about this on C-SPAN? Hey, what is this? I mean, seriously, the last time the neoconservatives had influence and real power uh, would have probably been the end of the first George W. Bush term when Paul Wolfowitz was the deputy uh, defense secretary. It's tricky. Again, this is how these guys actually are able to pass the smell test. You know, I mean, like we were saying earlier, being a neo being labeled a neoconservative these days is almost career 
kryptonite. People don't want to associate with neoconservatives. It has too much of like a stench that follows it from that era of the the Bush administration and all the Iraq war shit. It's just interesting because it just parallels all the stuff. We've played you some audio clips in this episode about how Wolfowitz and Richard Pearl and Crystal all try to distance themselves, not just even from the phrase neoconservative, but like the actual policies which they've endorsed with their signatures. They are intent on making Glenn Greenwald um, seem dishonest. They have like a huge vendetta against Glenn Glenn Greenwald um, against Russia today, obviously. They're just a small piece of this larger uh, framework of different like younger and sort of more hidden neoconservative reporters and and think tank people who are like all mostly in Washington, D.C. Yeah, and then David Frum, um, who was the author of the Axis of Evil speech under Bush. He was Bush's speechwriter for like a couple years or maybe less. And um, he's actually writing at the Daily Beast in the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah, the Atlantic is another one too. He just went to the Ukraine with uh, Kerchik. Uh, yeah, they were taking probably on the FBI's together. paycheck. I mean, doing I don't know what, you know, and, and so David Frum is tight with him, uh-huh. which is really disturbing. And David Frum was just given room on the Daily Beast not too long ago, saying why the axis of evil still stands. I mean, he's mm-hmm. proud of this. And Rosie Gray wrote that ridiculous expose on how the inner workings of Putin's propaganda network, and it was just like. It was just so ridiculous because it's like that's the way every network works. I just was on the BBC and in fact, much worse in other cases. Case in point, I was just on the BBC uh, doing an interview, about eight minute interview about Ukraine, media coverage of Ukraine. And uh, it was extremely adversarial. And, um, you know, I was accused of, I wasn't accused, but, but the host essentially insinuated that RT's coverage was causing deaths on the ground in Ukraine. And then I kind of fired back saying, well, you know, the UK and the US's partnership in crime has been covertly undermining the democratic evolution of multiple countries for years with covert operations. And um, and he just got really upset and ended the interview. And then the interview just completely got pulled and it will never air again. And which is just so funny that you see people like Rosie Gray claiming that RT is so different than any but other Abby, network. But Abby, um, uh, Jamie Kerchick says that uh, that journalists for RT are complete failures in their own countries who mm-hmm. can't get a job at MSNBC, CNN, BBC, or any respectable news outlet. Why can't you? I mean, come on. BBC is a respectable news right. outlet. Right. Yeah. So it's they, like this- they really, really entertain and offer a platform for marginalized third party voices and grassroots activists and independent thought. Yeah, you're right. Totally. It's just hilarious that one of the most vitriolic people out there who's rallying against RT is a guy who used to work for Radio Free Europe, a U.S. government right. propaganda outlet. It's just, I mean, I mean, there's not any irony in that because obviously it's not genuine. I mean, right. it's like, why would he have such a strong opinion against Russia today? <laughs> I mean, if it was anybody else, like yeah, if it was yeah, a guy yeah. who, ju- if it was just a really neoconservative guy who just was really pro-U.S., like I would take him more seriously. Right. Um, it's just really funny. It is. <laughs> um, and it really can only mean one thing to me, which is that he is completely disingenuous in his outrage. It's faux outrage. He doesn't give a fuck. All he's doing is he knows how to get that rhetoric out there. And that's all that's important to him. Maybe he believes in some of that rhetoric. Maybe he doesn't. But he's just, he's such a disingenuous 
liar, I mean, almost a pathological liar, sociopath, that it's really hard to even come down on the side of believing anything that he says or to believe in any of the outrage that he claims to have about Russia or any of this other shit. Oh, and speaking of access of evil on Eli Lake's uh, little like mini write up when you click on his name on the Daily Beast website, it says he is one of the few journalists to report from all three members of President Bush's axis of evil, Iraq, Iran, and North Korea. What? <laughs> I don't oh, know if that's supposed to be funny or, or not. I don't real know. proud of it. That's just really weird. I mean, it would be funny if they weren't actually friends with David Frum. <laughs> like, it's just, I mean, when you're friends with the guy who actually did write that, then it's kind of just disturbing. It's it? weird. It's really fucking weird. Yeah, and all these guys now, I mean, from the Foreign Policy Initiative, even the older guys, not just this next-gen neoconservative bunch, um, but like Dan Sinor, who was the um, Paul Bremer spokesperson in, in Iraq, uh, the Provision Coalition Authority, um, and Bill Crystal are both going out into the media right now. Um, you know, I don't know, Robert Kagan's not really that much of a public figure. He may be writing more books. Eric Edelman, the other founder of the Foreign Policy Initiative, he's not really in public. But, you know, just with between, you know, maybe like four or five people who are directly going out there, spreading the ideas of this think tank, think tank just on, on their own can do an immense amount of damage. And it's not just them. I mean, they also have other little minions that go out to the media um, let me just tell you some of their names. Um, uh, Hannah Thornburn is like a foreign policy initiative PR spokesperson. Um, you'll see her occasionally in the press talking about Ukraine and stuff, especially right now. Um, Josh Rogan co-wrote the Al-Qaeda conference call thing with Eli Lake. And I've seen him at a, a few of these neocon foreign policy think tank talks. Um, and Robert Zarate is uh, the policy director and the public face of the Foreign Policy Initiative. You'll see him around uh, the media very occasionally. Um, he's, you don't see him around too much, though. <laughs> um, I wanted to offer some um, additions here that Steve Horn, actually the guy who kind of dropped the ball on the Who, What, Why article, he followed up with a giant expose about Radio Free Europe and Voice of America. It's I just saw really that. Good. Yeah. Um, yeah, it has. It shows. Well, you go ahead. and Yeah, no, I was just going to read a couple of things from it, which is that yeah. during this firestorm on RT and all the um, attention on RT, the U.S. just gave um, signed a bill. Basically, Barack Obama signed a bill on United States international programming to Ukraine and neighboring regions uh, just on April 3rd. And this was all kind of totally under the radar of the mainstream media. It passed very quickly, little debate in, in Congress. It injects $10 million in taxpayer-funded cash into VOA and Radio Free Europe, Voice of American Radio Free Europe, to air news coverage in Ukraine. Um, and and in the bill, in the, in the actual legislation, it says... Quote, the Russian government has deliberately blocked the Ukrainian people's access to uncensored sources of information and has provided alternative news and information that is both inaccurate and inflammatory. The opinions and views of the Ukrainian people are not being accurately represented in Russian-dominated mass media. U.S. international programming has the potential to combat this anti-democratic propaganda. That is actually in the bill explicitly to fend off RT's hegemony in the region. Wow. Um, and also in 2012, 
we essentially taxpayers have paid $206 million. I'm sorry, $96 million from the U S government in 2012. Amazing. And, and over the course of, I don't know, a decade, $206 million. Wow. So I didn't realize how much money they had. I mean, that's, I, I guess that's not that surprising. I guess what is surprising to me about radio free Europe is just how they've stayed under the radar to people like you and me and like other, like, um, you know, journalists who want to investigate American propaganda. I mean, it's just so strange that they don't have more of a presence, um, in that sense. Right. I don't get it. Yeah. This is really, really interesting. Um, it just talks about how radio free Europe and voice of America have existed as not just to promote, pro-american views i mean they were actually like calling to for violent incursions yeah like in the past i mean they have been an active player in a lot of this um a lot of these like color revolutions well yeah a lot of these like post-soviet states client states there's all these different methods of getting the american government propaganda out there and and that's one of them that's a new one that we didn't really we weren't really aware existed to the at this level um, you know, having a direct U.S. media propaganda outlet just directly um, without any sort of um, attempt to hide it. Um, we have the corporate, you know, uh, influence and in the, in the U.S. government's influence over the corporate media. Um, we have people feeding reporters like Eli Lake and quote unquote anonymous, uh, like, you know, U.S. government um, sources that remain anonymous um, propaganda that way. Um and then, uh, I don't know, it's just, there's just different ways of actually spreading propaganda. And then we have people who create sort of this intellectually um, appealing, but also easily repeatable um, sort of talking point constructions about, you know, Ukraine and Russia and why we need to build up NATO troops against Russia. And they float those out into the, into the um, mainstream media, like people like Dan Senor and, and William Crystal. Um, so there's just all different ways that this is happening and it all sort of all roads lead to the same thing. <laughs> like, so, yeah. th- you know, think about it that way. Like they don't have to all be like in collusion with each other. It's like, that's really actually not how these things work. You know, there's not right. some sort of overarching control that all these things are, are working in tandem with each other. It's just that it's a feeding frenzy almost. Yeah. And I they're mean, almost the like, most shameless and kind of blatant about it. Who the neoconservative yeah. tink thinks. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And they jump in and you notice they jump in at the, what they think is going to be the right moment. I mean, that's why they wrote this letter to Obama now. Um, cause they thought it was this, this ripe moment where they can actually affect change. Um, and you know, I think when they wrote that letter to Clinton, uh, they actually got Clinton to sort of ramp up bombing campaigns in Iraq. And unfortunately for them back then, you know, it took 9-11 for them to be able to jump in again. But that was when they took their opportunity again. So I, I just, you know, I don't think there's any reason to downplay or to like, you know, take lightly what they're trying to do right now. I mean, they see this as an opportunity to get to put some of these things into effect. And that's to me what's scary um, well, yeah, so, and they were. And this is the same organization that was responsible for trying to push the Syria bombing campaign. They also oh, were responsible God, yeah. for escalating the Afghanistan war. They have a lot of blood on their hands, not even to mention the Iraq war and everything else. Yeah. I'm just talking about a recent history. So oh, yeah. if it weren't, for, if it isn't, okay, if the people aren't going to stand up and see through the rhetoric, then there is a good chance that they will be able to really um, push forwards for some really crazy 
policy. Yeah, and they're grooming, you know, they're grooming young young uh, politicians like Marco Rubio, the Foreign Policy Initiative has hosted a talk or two with him um, to sort of express his views and, and his views, you know, he's just saying things that they that he knows will get a good response there. Like, you know, he's a typical politician, but but then they also associate with sort of the older hawk, really hawkish, you know, foreign policy hawk um, politicians like John McCain, people like Mike Rogers. And uh, Mike Rogers is the guy who keeps saying Snowden is a Russian spy. Um, uh, and Peter King, the guy who thinks that Glenn Greenwald and uh, Snowden should be prosecuted. Um, they have, they've hosted talks with him. Um, Mitt Romney, <laughs> Because Dan Senior and Robert Kagan were both uh, advisors of his during Mitt Romney's campaign, so there's a whole lot of like, you know, crossover here, and it's not surprising that they associate with those politicians. You know, the same ones that say some of the most disgusting and egregious um, stuff publicly. You know, no, it's just uh, it, there's a lot of misinformation coming out right now about about Ukraine, and it really is this region of the world that this these neoconservatives are trying to seize upon. I mean, I'm just hoping that Russia doesn't do anything stupid. I hope that they don't go any more into Ukraine. And I just hope that we can de-escalate that because if they do, then things are going to be really bad. I, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. I think it's still up for debate, but in terms of the FPI and RT, who knows, but they'll use whatever they can for the rallying. I mean, Eli Lake was already calling for a boycott of RT before even Russia was in the news. Yeah. So they, they have their eyes set they have their sights set on the network. They know that it does damage and they, you know, they're pissed off because of how much damage RT did even to them. Like even my little tiny mono and stuff, I think pissed them off. Um, and what was so funny is they kept saying that it was an assault by RT. They kept like affiliating the truth dig piece with like that RT did it. And it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. it's like, dude, Rania and Max have nothing to do with RT. It's by Russia today. You know, or it's by Stormfront. Like he kept tweeting to that Stormfront article, um, which is a neo-Nazi like blog. And I don't even think it is. It's like they believe in themselves so much in the power of American might. They believe they truly believe that America has kept the entire planet in check for right. this entire post-World War II era. Right. They believe that we heroically swept in and won World War II. We defeated Nazi Germany um, and that we're here as um, a checks and balances for the entire world's protection and it's like at this point i don't even think they i don't even think the possibility of some kind of like dangerous confrontation crosses their mind when they're even thinking of going after china and russia i think that to them it's more like you know we need to realign ourselves to pivot against them like like we used to be otherwise we're actually like giving in to sort of the power brokering like we're like sharing too much power with them almost or giving them too much leverage by sort of like not treating them you know what like it is it's almost you know? just it's almost just like in line with the bush doctrine uh yeah. dealing with countries that you know are going to be a threat in the future except so it's, it's like, like even the ultimate that, yeah. version of that it's yeah, like it is. where 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 do you so like take that logic far enough i mean that's all they're doing really they're the neoconservatives they take that line of thinking all the way to the end who's the last man like right. last man standing and it's like russia china and the right United exactly States. I think it's very much about keeping the United States in the role that it had directly after World War II in this position of power, where it's just like either, you know, the bipolar world, as Robert Kagan puts it, or just, you know, us versus them. 
and, yeah. and like them, like the more powerful, the better, because then we could, um, you know, then that that's where the like sort of like the patriotism and the nationalism and the things that unify us come come from. Yeah. You know, and that's why war is the health of the state. It doesn't have to be like constant fighting and battles and violence. It just has to be that climate of 1984, you know, of like Oceania. The war is always just kind of going on in the background. Exactly. Um, and the war on terror, it doesn't matter if it's not called the war on terror anymore. The war on terror was always just another name for an excuse to continue sort of that U.S. imperialism, um, just like always. You know, it always just takes new forms. Yeah. So, and it's, that's why we need to keep our eyes on these characters. We need to keep following the work and just, uh, you know, keep trying to interject the counterpoints and try to break through this conventional wisdom that they're going to seize upon to rally the American people into supporting another war. And we just need to keep calling for peace and diplomacy and reminding people that that's always an option. And we can't let people get sucked into this again, because we understand how short, the memory is of a lot of people living in this country. It's like the United States of amnesia is what Gore Vidal called it. And it really is. It's like people can't even remember what happened five years ago. So we need to really, really keep on point because we are in a really tense situation. Um, and we just got to keep uh, doing these broadcasts, keep breaking the set, keep uh, exposing the truth and calling out these people. Robbie. Well, the only thing I have to add is, is the most recent events that have been happening. What started as a groundswell, seemingly agitprop generated purely by DC think tanks and various other non-government entities, has now morphed literally into US official state government policy. It might sound hard to believe, but John Kerry, the Secretary of State, actually went out and attacked Russia Today, the RT TV network, on April 25th. And he called um, its coverage of the Ukraine crisis a propaganda bullhorn. Not only that, not only has the U.S. government actually started to speak about the network, a State Department website called blogs.state.gov. I didn't even realize this was a website. I'd never heard of it until the other day. But they have an article called Russia Today's Disinformation Campaign. And in the article, not only did they claim that the Victoria Newland um, quote that we played earlier in the broadcast about putting $5 billion on the ground in Ukraine is false, but they also claim that RT is actually causing deaths. It's just interesting that they try to claim that these leaked recordings and the, the one from Victoria Newland talking about $5 billion wasn't even leaked. It was a recording of a public talk and they mentioned your name, Abby. Um, so congratulations for being officially named on a statedepartment.gov website. And it shouldn't come as a surprise, but Radio Free Europe slash Radio Liberty has also started writing articles about RT very recently, following in the wake of John Kerry's um, statement about the network. And besides that, that's where we're at now. So, you know, sky is the limit. Let's see where this is going to go. Pretty crazy. Well, thanks so much, everyone, for listening. Check out mediaroots.org. Um, record label records.org my brother's uh, music label abbymartin.org I'm getting a lot of new merch on my art site and please donate to Media Roots to keep, keep citizen journalism going if you are a competent writer and you want to contribute please email our our point person at info at mediaroots.org and they'll get back to you with uh, how you can do that my
B, thanks everyone for listening. Bye.